0: Broadcasting from deep in the Eublifarus galaxy, on a small planet called Gekonia, east of the Albino Hills and south of the raging Leucistic River, comes the one, the only Gecko Nation Radio. Good evening, uh, Gecko Nation and everybody out there that's listening tonight. Uh, tonight is July thirteenth, two 2014. Um, great to be back on the air, and uh, tonight we have a very special uh, guest with us and a very special show planned. Uh, tonight is uh, dedicated to Jonathan Boone. Uh, John Boone, uh, if you don't know who he is, uh, John is a global wildlife photographer and researcher and uh, he's studied captive husbandry and propagation of geckos since 1979. Um, he started, a lot, started out a lot like uh, many of us did with leopard geckos and um, other uh, more common species like Selzuma, day geckos, and whatnot, uh, but he's expanded into some of the most rarest and obscure geckos in the world. Um, he's done field research in Central America, South America, the Caribbean, in northern and southern Africa, uh, he's currently bred and kept kept over uh, 500 different species and bred at least 200 or more. Uh, we're going to talk to him about some of those um, different obscure species that he works with, and we're also going to talk about his experiences uh, traveling to the to where these actual geckos are. Uh, a lot of us will never even get to do those types of adventures. And, uh, that's pretty much what John's done. He's gone on gecko adventures, stuff many of us just dream about. Um, I mean, we get a little taste of it when we, when we are fortunate enough to keep some of these very rare and exotic animals. Uh, you know, we get to experience a little bit of that in our homes, but to actually go to these places is gotta be amazing. And, um, definitely want to hear about those experiences. Uh, before we get started though, I want to just mention that Gekko Nation Radio of course would not be possible uh, without its amazing sponsors and uh, we've carefully chosen the sponsors and invited them uh, to be part of our show and our sponsor club here is here. These are really great breeders and great businesses uh, that we deal with and we want you guys also to feel comfortable with the purchases that you're going to be making um, with your geckos, with your reptiles, food for them, uh, caging, supplies. Uh, We want you guys to know that you're not going to get ripped off and you're going to get the very best, okay? And the people that are represented through this show are just that, the very best. So you're going to hear some of them now, and you're going to hear some of them at the mid-show break. Check them out. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. Gecko Nation Radio is sponsored by Ron Tremper is the biggest contributor to leopard gecko morph making, known worldwide for his amazing examples of living art. You can now download his Leopard Gecko Care app his morph encyclopedia app called Leopard Gecko Pro and visit his site, lepergecko.com, to see where morphs are made. Giantleopardgecko.com specializes in giant and supergiant leopard geckos with a focus on selectively bred exceptional lines of many different morph combinations, including high-end African fat tails and crested geckos. With over 17 years of experience in herpeticulture, Keith Kagan brings you quality, integrity, and value. Check out giantlepergecko.com on the web and on Facebook. Reptiles Express is the absolute best live animal shipping company with great low rates. Debbie is the queen of customer service and will make sure your precious cargo gets to where it needs to. They also have a wide array of shipping supplies from deli cups, snake bags, heat packs, and more. Visit reptilesexpress.com and become a member today. And if you're looking for quality food for your dubia roaches, crickets, mealworms, and superworms, look no further than MS2 Premium Insect Chow. Made with reptiles in mind, it contains no dog food, cat food, or chicken mash. Using only vegetable proteins and high-quality ingredients, MS2 Premium Insect Chow will have your feeders making a beeline for it. Contact ms2ent.weebly.com or... It can also be purchased at Rainbow Mealworms and AB Dragons. ABDragons.com is your source for the highest quality dubia roaches. Whether you're starting a colony of your own or just need feeders for your insect-eating herps, ABDragons.com can't be beat in quality or price. They are also a huge distributor of FlexWatt reptile heat tape and have very competitive pricing. Check out ABDragons.com online and on Facebook. All right, folks, and I also want to take a minute here to mention our newest sponsor, uh, someone that I'm very, very happy to represent on our show and also call a new friend. And uh, that's Daryl Burton and his son, Cade, uh, have created their own uh, gecko breeding operation called Longhorn Geckos, okay? Longhorn Geckos is a father and son collaboration, and they only breed A-plus geckos, okay? Stuff like T'Angelo's. Uh, uh, supercantilus, pastel raptors, white and yellow bells, and a growing uh, population of wild types, such as Angermanus, um and uh, Montanus, Terpmanicus, and uh, Afghanicus, I believe, as well. Um, but if we know anything about Daryl, he's going to be adding a lot more to that and I see he just called in. He's on the line. So, everybody, check out Daryl Burton's Facebook page, Longhorn Geckos, all right? And he's going to have a website soon called longhorngeckos.com. When I think of longhorn geckos, I was telling Daryl, I think of a gecko, leopard gecko, driving a Cadillac with uh, those big horns on the front grill, and the gecko's got a cowboy hat on, and he's cruising down the the road. That's what I think of when I think of longhorn geckos. <laughs> so uh, pretty cool to his website somehow. But um, also, folks, I want to mention that tonight I am joined. Well, first of all, I just want to say John Boone is the type of enthusiast, breeder, uh, extraordinaire that I just don't even feel worthy of, you know, because like when you're in different levels of the game, you know, John Boone has surpassed so much other hobbyists and keepers out there with his accomplishments. So I kind of felt like there was a huge gap between myself and him, and uh, I felt like I needed somebody to bridge that gap and help me a little bit tonight. So I brought on who I like to call the Shaolin Monk of geckos, and that is Mr. Joe Hupp from Australodonian Geckos and Dart Frogs. Joe, you're live on Geek Nation Radio.
1: Hey, how's it going, Dave? How you doing today?
0: I'm doing good. You're the you're the Shaolin monk, so that means John Boone must be like the master sensei, right?
1: He's a ninja. He's something. Yeah, He's
0: the, yeah ninja. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. How's everything going? With some you, high Jeff?
1: skill. Good, good, good. Yeah. Um, the season's moving along. Incubators are full. Uh, egg boxes are full. It's it's rocking. Full blast. Uh, That's cool. you know, I was packing up for a show last night I uh, realized I only had a couple hours to sleep So I decided to skip it, rock through the show And uh, had some dinner and here I am So uh, looking forward to a good show Well you
0: know it's like fasting Sometimes like if you go without sleep every once in a while It kind of jump starts your body a little bit And gives you like a natural rush uh, It's kind of good for you So I, I appreciate you, you pushing through and sticking with us tonight
1: Every day for sure for sure.
0: Awesome, awesome. All right, well, let's go ahead and jump right into the news segment, and uh, we're going to go ahead and bring on our esteemed news anchor, Mr.
2: Steve Barker. Good evening, Gaconians.
0: <laughs> there he is. What's up, Steve? Hey,
2: what's going on? It, you know, it feels like it's been a long time. You know, two weeks, <laughs> it, but it really isn't. But it just seems like it. <laughs> I know. Well, we needed a week off. We needed
0: a, a break. It was. It was nice to have a little vacation time, right?
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, All well, right. What did you do with
0: it? Anything special? Do anything special?
2: Uh, no. I just I prepared for my son's graduation party, which was today earlier. So <laughs> I just got done cleaning up. Oh, cool. All right, cool. Yeah, it was fun. Nice, nice. All right. So I want to remind everybody that you have to go on and make your comment for the constrictor rule. You got to do it. And I hope this count is wrong. It says 1,000 comments have been received. I mean, that is. No, that's nothing. I I, I can't believe it. I, I don't know if. People just aren't taking it seriously.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's what it is, I think. That's exactly what it is. There's a uh, just a feeling of apathy out there with people that don't think this is actually really going to happen. I am, yeah.
2: And, uh, it's happening. Yeah, it's horrible. A thousand comments? Come on. Right? And that's crazy. I know. All right. So you guys can find that link on usarc.org. And let me just jump comment. in real quick. I don't.
0: All right, I don't want to burden everybody with a lot of doom and gloom tonight, but um, this is this is very serious, okay, folks. So go on the US Arc site, like Steve said. Uh, if you don't know what's going on with this constrictor rule, do a little bit of research about it, okay? Um, they're trying to basically. The bottom line is they're trying to add large snakes to the Lacey Act, which would basically make them illegal to own and transport in in most areas and if that happens, that's going to give them a gateway into banning smaller species, which will eventually get to our small little geckos, okay, whether it be more exotic stuff or it's just the common leopard geckos. So, guys, yeah, I want to try to stop this in the where it is now. Go ahead. What were you going to say?
1: Oh, sure. There's a lot of legislation out there. I and mean, you really have to keep your eye on it. Last yeah. year there was something going through where, I mean, they literally wanted to ban all Amphibians. I mean, not dart frogs, not indigenous species. Yeah. All amphibians. Yep. I mean, that's that's huge. I mean, it's yeah. uh, it's scary when uh, you know, in today's age in society, and I'm not going to pick a side on either part of the political fence because honestly, I go with my opinion. Sometimes it's liberal, sometimes it's Democrat because I think you have to look at things for what they are. But man. Everybody wants to uh, tell the other side, you can't do this. I think we need to look at each other and say, hey, maybe this law shouldn't exist because I have a difference of opinion with you. You know, a law should exist. You can't kill somebody. You can't keep a frog. I mean, whether you like frogs or not, you got to admit it's it's a pretty silly law, you know? Yeah, it is. It is. So, folks,
0: please, please. uh, Your power is in your comment, and in your donation to USR. Uh, yeah. We need you guys to donate anything that you can, even if it's a couple dollars. Donate it to the USR Legal Defense Fund, because they need that money to file the lawsuits against these, these, uh, these people like Fish and Game and um, HSUS that are coming after us. Okay, So please take it seriously. Do what you can. Alright, uh, I recently ran a special Gecko Nation radio uh, raffle in addition to the RAA CA raffle. And that was a success. Rob uh, Honey won that one, and uh, I'm going to do that again when when that raffle comes around. But I'm also thinking that we're going to do special things with Gecko Nation as well. So I'm just going to talk to Steve and the sponsors about that. So uh, keep that on, keep that in in your in your mind, guys. And if you do donate to USARC, uh, let me know about it, okay? And we'll definitely uh, return some of that gratitude and you know help you maybe get some exposure on the show and stuff and definitely give you just some
2: kudos for that. All right. Uh, All right. Go ahead, Steve. Thanks everyone. All right. Which that leads us into West Virginia's dangerous wild animal act. U S arc has remained active in West Virginia after the passing of their dangerous wild animal act. The final proposed list of animals to be listed includes thousands of species. The five-page list includes entire orders and families, rather than just single species. Common wow. pet Yeah, common pets on the list include all tetra fish, hamsters, hedgehogs, all turtles and tortoises except native species to West Virginia, all salamanders and newts, ferrets, all goby fish, sugar gliders, and many more. I mean, this, this list is huge. The list can so be viewed... Basically,
0: everything, everything but cats and dogs, basically, right?
2: Right, basically, yeah. <laughs> and anybody who has anything on that list is subject to a $100 annual permit per animal. Oh, my God. That's crazy! Jeez, that, that is yeah, crazy. That is crazy. Okay, the list would take up sixty-four pages individually. All the reptiles and amphibian species proposed to be banned on that on eight eight and a half by eleven paper, single space, small font. It would take sixty-four pages to list all of them. That's a lot of animals. There yeah. are. Uh, 1,008 reptiles, 2,185 amphibians listed on it. That's crazy.
0: Now that's just West Virginia. You know, yeah. if they get that passed, if they get that pass, that'll set a precedent for other states.
2: So it will. If anybody yep. from
0: West, yeah, if anybody from West Virginia is listening, you guys need to be vigilant right now, like you've never been before, and, and stop this in its tracks. So.
2: Yep. You have a 30-day comment period that began last week. Just so you guys got to get your comments in and I'll post that on the Gecko Nation the link to that on the Gecko Nation Facebook page so everybody knows where the, where they can go for that. Okay, but yeah, cool. that's that is crazy. Scary. And since the summer's here, we know what happens when summer comes around. We start to see loose snakes. hmm Enormous boa constrictor on the loose in Lake. Let me hope, hope I say this right. Hope and Kong? Have hope Kong. Say, Yeah, that's it. Hope at Kong. <laughs> All right. A 20-foot boa constrictor is on the loose <laughs> there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> Good time in there.
1: <laughs> wow!
2: Yeah, twenty foot, dozens of sightings they've had, and this this is from an animal control officer. This is a quote: We what we're afraid of is the animals—small dogs, cats, raccoons—and I would advise people not to put their baby in the lake.
0: And and it can go twenty. <laughs> it can swim twenty-five miles per hour. Yes.
2: Right? That, yep. That was my next line. <laughs> 25 and, and miles could, per hour. While traveling and in a boat.
0: Squeeze, <laughs> yep, and impossibly and squeeze you to death. So, yeah, yep, that's this on is, here this too. It's ridiculous.
3: Yeah, this it is. Completely it's, ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, geez. All
0: right. You would think that, you know, they got such a big tourist thing there too. <laughs> you would think that they would want to quiet that whole thing down. But they, they, they maybe blew it up. and. You Dave,
2: know, you know what? I think that is part of their plan is to draw in I tourists.
0: Do too.
3: I know. Well, You know,
2: really, oh, I'm going to go here to go see if I can see the big snake, you know? (laughs)
3: Yeah.
2: It's, It's crazy the general
1: public's perspective on snakes sometimes. I used to work for a pest control company. On occasion, we'd have somebody that would just abandon one in an apartment. And typically, the call would involve a little bit of panicking from the person on the other end of the line, somewhere along the lines of 10 to 15 feet. And you get there and you're prepared to deal with a Burmese python or a retic or something like that the first time, and you open the door, you take a look around, and then you see a three-foot male ball python. <laughs> and it's, um, it's, it's, you know, nine times out of ten or more, that's really what it is. They just panic, they see it, and they don't realize it's pretty much a lizard with no eyelids or, you know, vestigial limbs. <laughs> um, it's, it's pretty harmless, and it's an animal that, it doesn't have hands, it's got a mouth. So if you give it a reason to be defensive, it can't push you. It's the only thing it's got. You know, if you yeah. leave yeah. it alone, the vast yeah. majority of snake bites happen because people are trying to kill the snake or mess with it. Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah that's a good point. It's, it's it's ridiculous, the perception out there. That's why we've got to work to change it, all of us.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Now, this, this next article on the same lines, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, A giant snake found under the hood of a car. Okay. Mm. Now, the best part of this article is authorities say the snake is not dangerous and most likely a pet that escaped from the the owner's home. It it was a 9-foot, 20-pound snake. It looked like a Burmese python by the pictures. They didn't say what it was, but at least they said it was not dangerous. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Now... Have you guys ever, other than a snapping turtle, come across an aggressive tortoise? Say, I know what you're going <laughs> with this one. I saw a lot of this, posts on Facebook. This is crazy. crazy. Yeah. yeah. Are you I talking know about know oh, the one that got shot? One. Yeah. You have. Yeah. They? I know
0: somebody that has a pretty uh, pretty mean sulcata. He does kind of he headbutts oh, really? you kind of when you yeah he doesn't oh. try to bite you but he's very defensive and he kind of headbutts you with his shell.
2: Um, he doesn't, he doesn't I think like it would be. Coo- I think it would be cool. <laughs> Gives them personality. <laughs> <Huh>? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ugandan police officer traumatized by confrontation with aggressive tortoise. he had, <laughs> I tried to scare it, but the tortoise became very aggressive. Immediately, I immediately <laughs> picked up a plastic chair to hit it, then got out of the hut. It goes on. And it, he ended up. I I reached for my gun and shot it dead. It was a very oh. big white tortoise. A white tortoise. I'm going to guess it was
1: probably yellowish in the Salcata. I mean, a guess. I didn't guess yeah. yeah. what the species was. But yeah,
2: it didn't list the species, but yeah, if yeah. you can walk backwards faster than
1: something can come at you, not really a threat.
2: <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. That. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. All right. Is that the
0: last story, Steve?
2: Yes, it was. Yep.
0: All right. I have this. Take us back in time, Steve.
2: Yeah, October seventh, nineteen eighty nine. A sixteen-foot snake dropped out of a tree on a construction worker's bulldozer, and quickly became the second giant reticulated python caught in South Florida. October seventh, 1989. Not really that (laughs) far away. Wow. No. Wow, interesting.
0: So what's going on in your collection there? Anything new and exciting, Steve?
2: Uh, I'm hatching out a lot of Eclipse. Um, I've got a couple of Raptors, really nice ones, too. I, I, I don't know which one's to keep. I like them all so much. <laughs> mm-hmm. A bunch a bunch of bandits, um, striped bandits. Um, let's see what else. I don't know. I'm still waiting on my ball python eggs to hatch. but. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, send me pictures of your geckos. I'll tell you which ones have the most potential and which ones to hold on to. All
2: right, cool. Cool. If you're undecided. Yeah. All
0: right, Awesome. Steve, I want to thank you very much for the news tonight, and uh, we will see you next week on Christina's episode.
2: I will see you there. Thanks, bud. Thank you. Thank you. I have a great night, man. You too. All right, Joe, we are at that
0: time to to bring on John. You want to tell us a little, a little bit about him before we bring him on?
1: John, um... <laughs> I've been to his collection. It's, uh, it's, it's basically Christmas. It's for a gecko. It's, um, it's, it's pretty quantitative. It's, it's amazing. Um, I'd be, I don't know that it is, but I'd be surprised if it wasn't the most diverse collection species wise in this hemisphere. Um, John can answer that better than I could, but, um, yeah, John, he's been there, done that kind of guy, you know, he's been doing it forever. He's, um, he's consistent, you know, he's, bred species after species after species i mean he's a perfect example of uh you know you fail every time you don't try in life um and he tries every single time and he he pushes ahead you know i mean he's been to africa tons of times you know he's found new species um a lot of times you know he's got some species in his collection i've I've certainly never heard of. He's got some that aren't even named yet. You know, I've even gotten a few from him like that. Um, he's just uh, he's one of those go-getters that doesn't quit, you know, and that's, that's what life's about is, you know, find your passion, go for it, don't look back. You know, I mean, you could work a job 40, 50 hours a week for somebody else and build their dream, or you can say, no, I'm, I'm going to build mine and use that same time and that same effort. And, you know, that's John's pushed that into it. He's he's done everything he can to move on and just kill it. I mean, I don't know anybody that's done with geckos. So, yeah, so, Let's bring him on. Yeah, no, he's, he's not intimidating. No. He's a friendly guy. And he's he's very open with information. Um, he's been extremely helpful to me. Uh, you know, he opened my eyes to some African species of geckos. I can't believe I didn't look at before. The diversity of species in Africa. It's it's insane. I mean, most people aren't even aware of a lot of these species. Like, you know, they may have seen a picture of a webfoot gecko in uh, an old issue of uh, National Geographic or something like that, or a, uh, you know, they've probably heard of a barking gecko at some point. Which I've got two species now, and the bark is great. I can actually hear it upstairs a little bit, um, even over ah. a fan at night, and I don't mind. You know, it's it's really cool. It's kind of hearing that chorus like you're out in a uh, in a tent in Africa, which is a goal to go there someday. But, um, yeah, yeah. Let's bring John on.
0: All right. Jonathan Boone, you are live on Gecko Nation radio. You there? John, yeah. Oh,
4: yeah. you yeah. Yeah, I'm here, buddy. What's going on?
0: Thank you so much. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time, uh, tonight. It's an My honor pleasure. to have you with us. Oh, My great. Pleasure. Um, you, you know, we talked a little bit earlier and, uh, you know, there's so many different things that I'd like to talk with you about tonight. And um, we usually, you know, well, we all have kind of similar stories about how we got started. I mean, but you've really come so far, much further than anybody can even dream of. But why don't you just tell us about some of your, your humble beginnings uh, before we get into the more exciting stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, I
4: think I started just as a lot of kids do. I mean, you know, I, I live in the country in Oklahoma. And uh, reptiles and amphibians were an integral part of my day-to-day life. I, I, You know, I'd find them in my yard, and I had friends that would uh, catch them on the playground. I mean, I went to a very small country school um, just outside of the east side of Tulsa. So, I mean, as I got uh, into junior high school, um, I had bumped into a friend that had, had geckos, uh, leopard geckos, and became a little fascinated in them. And, and then um, eventually, I think by the time I was in ninth grade, I had leopard geckos, and then Shortly thereafter, I found some bay geckos at a pet shop. So that kind of planted the initial seed. And then uh, there were a couple of, of mentors um, that came along in about 1981 that were very instrumental in keeping me plugged into geckos and, and showing me the avenue You know, for somebody in the ninth grade, kind of going out into the, uh, out into the hobby. And there wasn't much of a hobby then. So it was a, a really, really fortunate thing for me that I, I got plugged into these people and partly through the Tulsa Zoo so I you know, made some phone calls to try to try to get some help and, and find other animals. But um, I think the most interesting interesting man that I ever met in geckos was a, a veterinarian doctor that worked for the Brickfield Zoo in Chicago. And I came into contact with him in 1982. And in 1983, I was at an IHS symposium in Dallas. And uh, I, I think I was a, maybe 18 years old. And he said, you know, hey, look, come up to my room tonight. I'm going to have a slideshow. And he just kind of deaded off the bed of his uh, there in his room. And in that room were people like there was me, there was two Falsuma guys, Michael Heinrichs and Bob McMorris, both from Florida. And then the uh, gentleman, uh, the, the veterinary doctor was Dr. Michael Miller. And then Tim Title was in the room as well. There were five of us that watched Michael's uh, slide presentation. And I remember just my jaw kind of fell onto the bed because he was showing things like Pachydactylus maculatus and oculitis and and these are geckos even today that I hold in very, very high respect. And so to see these things uh, so early on in in my exposure to to geckos really planted a a, a very um, diverse picture of of what was obtainable in geckos. So it it was really a very fertile uh, opportunity and and source of information for me. So he he rolled through, I don't know, maybe six or seven carousels until I just got numbed out and, and really didn't know what I was looking at anymore. And yeah, you know, so I followed up with uh, uh, importers and stuff that would bring animals in from different countries, and I had standing um, orders and and things you'd call me collect if you get something you don't know what it is. And of course, by the time I got it, I didn't know what it was either. So that I mean, that was kind of the, the framework going through high school of how it all started.
0: Amazing, and that you know that that to me is, is exciting in itself. And I, I gotta I gotta just ask you this, uh, John. I know what it is, you know what it is, but maybe for the listeners, um, you know, we all love reptiles in general, and herps, and, you know, we get excited thinking about them, and, you know, working with them, and dreaming about them, we we have them on our minds most of the day, and, but there is definitely something just a little bit more special about geckos, a little bit, something that just gets us a little bit more, uh, I don't know, I guess excited is the word to use, because that's what it does for me. Like, just thinking about there isn't a gecko species out there that doesn't have some appeal and magic to it for me. And, sure. you know, just seeing some of the things that you work with is like, oh, it, just, it makes my mind just work. And just, it, it's just a great thing to think about. You know, what is it about geckos in particular that is just a little bit more cooler than other
4: species of reptiles? yeah i think I, I think i get your point exactly because i it's the same question that i my, i myself and probably a lot of other people ask as well and it it really is is based in in the um uh, you know some scientific facts about geckos that are um you, know, you geckos is a group when you look at other yeah. when you look at other types of lizards they don't they do they do not possess the uh, you know the, the diversity the um you know, there's there's parallels between certain families and certain species occurring on different continents. So, but I think that you know the fact that lizards, uh, geckos are, are, are vocal. They're the only lizards that truly, the whole group having, you know, true vocal cords. Um, they have a, a vast array of uh, behavioral uh, displays, whether it's vocalizations, whether it's tail wagging, whether it's tongue head waving. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, optical. Uh, signals that, that uh, some that are more, you know, cued for that will use. And then again, you know, the nocturnals will use the acoustics. But uh, that, and then, you know, when you look at the just the physical diversi- diversification and uh, the number of species. So, I mean, you know, you've got spiny tails, you've got leaf tails, you've got tailless things like Nephirus ami. I mean, the the, the list and the, the variety of things is so uh, phenomenal. That it, that it gives people like myself a lifelong quest and you just can't ever really get to the top of the mountain. So, you know, it really helps fuel, um, you know, the, the interest of, of finding and looking and experiencing and talking with other people that have these, new, these different species. So, um, you know, I think skinks all look very similar. Uh, there's a lot of diversi- diversification with iguanas, but a lot of them do not make very good terrarium subjects. They need very large terrariums and specialized care um agamids i mean a lot of them are in inaccessible places uh and yet you know, they are very cons- semi consistent looking so i mean geckos is one of the fastest growing groups of lizards on the planet as far as new species and uh so i mean 1500 to 1700 species
1: subspecies
4: and forms is a lot to pick from
1: it's oh a challenge God. that's you know. a good thing i like that yeah 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 for sure. Yeah, it's it's almost impossible to even come close to uh, to try and get them all, but that doesn't mean you can't try. You can uh, try. There, right. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I'm I'm at uh, a measly 119 species right now, and it's um, not measly, my friend. No, but for me it is. For me it is.
2: Um, oh, are like,
1: How many geckos do you have in your basement? I'm like, not enough. But, um, I don't know.
4: Yeah, I don't. I frankly know. don't know. Most people ask me, and I say I don't know. How I've I've missed the count of my animals usually low. I've missed it by mm-hmm. as much as five hundred. And and if I yeah. and, and here I am admitting this over the radio to people, and they think how could you be so far off? Because I I can't keep up with myself. But everything's yeah. being cared for. Everything's. <laughs> and sometimes I don't know how many
1: species are genera time, This time of year. When you've got the babies just pouring out of the eggs too, I mean I can keep up with the number of species in my collection, but yeah, numbers—that's you can come count them if you want. I'm not, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, it's—it's uh, it's 119, amazing.
4: Joe. That's quite a bit, man. You've you've uh, you've been stacking them on good.
1: I'm proud of you. Yeah,
4: that's
1: yeah, big. yeah. I've uh, I was expecting it to take a few years to fill four rooms, and not really—not
3: <laughs> nah, that much room. But I'll
1: make it. Yeah. yeah um yeah but uh yeah it's it's great you know every time you look in that incubator you know it's it's a special day when you hatch something you've never hatched before but even when you've hatched you know some of your favorites you know i mean like for you uh you know afridura plumicata you know species mm-hmm. like that you never get tired of seeing that you know that uh, no I, I still have that
4: sensation you know it's uh I've had people here recently ask me, you know, what it, you know, they they've hatched their first lizard, and I, I, I share that because I, I still share it even today with some things like you said, new species, and then, you know, just the, just the excitement of of uh, you know something new every day. And it, I had a, a guy that helps me here. We we were looking at uh, some Condor eggs the other day, and one of the babies had hatched, and I you know kind of ferreted the baby out and looked, I mean, we both were looking at the other egg, and at the very moment, an unhatched egg completely exploded in chondrodactyl fashion, and the thing flew out like a banshee on fire. I mean, it was, it was just cool to see something rupture completely out of the egg that quick. So, I mean, it's just always coloration variances and, and uh, pattern differences and species, and so, yeah, it just it never gets old.
1: Yeah, it doesn't for sure. Yeah, um, it's funny, last week, John, I was opening one of the containers, uh, cause one of the, uh, Bavia hatched, um, mm. part of our trade this season. And, you know, I, I snag it's, uh, it's little fast gecko self and, uh, you know, <laughs> put it in a fruit fly cup. And the second mm-hmm. I look down, the other one is out of the egg. The egg wasn't even ruptured. I mean, this is like yeah. 10 seconds later. It's probably the fastest I've ever seen anything hatched. Yeah. And, um, it's just sitting there kind of looking at me <laughs> on the edge of the deli cup, you know, and it's at, uh, that second when you, um, you know, you realize a lot of people when they start off at small, fragile, fast things, they get a little panicky and they want to move fast. If you're calm, if you move a little bit slower, you know, if you edge that thing towards it, most of the time they don't bolt and you can catch them a lot easier. Yeah. Um, but That's cool. Yeah, I caught your second one, though, so they're both improved ups for you. So There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Hey John, when I was looking at your uh, website initially, and I was reading your bio on the on the front page there, um, what caught mm-hmm. my eye particularly is uh, how you discovered the uh, the two-year incubation cycle for Colaptes College. So can you talk a little bit about that and um, how you discovered, you know, why it takes so long? And I just thought that was incredible. And they look, they just have, I looked at the picture of them too. I didn't really even know about these this species and. I don't know if you guys are uh, sci-fi fans, but uh, that show yeah. "Falling Skies." <laughs> that that's, that show "Falling Skies." One of
1: those aliens kind of looks exactly it's, like these gecko. It's Alien incredible.
4: half gecko. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like a ghost it's, gecko or something. Yeah, they, they don't. They look otherworldly, and uh, you yeah. know their appearance kind of befits their ecological picture. In that, um, you know, something so frail and so so bizarre looking, uh, but it lives in a very small area, and it lives in in sand fields. Uh, near the coast of Namibia, and the largest thing sometimes if you 're standing in the habitat of Colopus Koki, the largest thing within a one kilometer radius of you will be a few rocks the size of a basketball. So there's literally there 's no sticks, there 's no plants, there 's no uh, escarpment or, or outcrop or, or nothing. there 's absolutely nothing but the coarse gravelly sand, and uh, it 's really a challenge. Uh, to walk into a place like that the first time and say, I, I wonder if Colopus lives here because there's no there's no signs of life. And so yeah. uh, the, the animal lives sympatrically with uh, Tenopus carpi, which is a barking jacker that lives uh, a little bit more, uh, has a little bit more extensive range than Colopus cochi, but Colopus cochi lives kind of in the center of its range. And uh, probably due to the uh, the nature of Tenopus carpi being larger, and artistically and more successful in finding partners and things like that, mating partners, uh, because they bark a lot, that uh, they're a little bit more successful in the overall ecological picture. So here's Coorpus cochi, this frail thing, looking, you know, kind of bumbling around with these larger animals. Literally, I mean, sometimes you can find them within five or ten feet of each other. But uh, what happened with wow. Coorpus me and some European guys eventually got a small group of them out, and then... They had tried to to keep them in the the past and uh, were were unsuccessful in keeping them alive. And uh, so I opted to to eventually take them back to the States, and I set them up, and and I had great success. And what was interesting was that um, when the eggs were laid, I could tell that when comparing to other African geconids that lay hard-shelled eggs of a similar size, like pachydapolis and things, that the eggs were very similar uh, but yet a little bit different, and they were different in that when you would, you know, use a light to, to uh, you know, check for vasculariz- vascularization of the, of the egg, that you would find absolutely no veining or nothing, two, three, four weeks into incubation. So I was very fortunate wow. in that in the early, or excuse me, in the mid to late '80s, I had bred Homophilus Wabergi and at the time Homophilus Bovini and uh, Socalava, which are now Bluestactus. And all three of those species can also have an egg that diapauses or goes into kind of a state of suspended animation where they don't do anything, and then some environmental or preset trigger triggers that egg to begin developing, and then it follows a normal 60- to 90-day developmental period, and then it hatches. But instead of, you know, two to three months of incubation, it might go six months to a year. And I had went through the frustrations with these species of, because nobody was around in the 80s to tell me about it, so I kind of made the discovery with these uh, diaposing eggs of homophilus geckos of Africa uh, that they don't vascularize and that if you were to crack a homophilus or colopus cockie egg uh, 45 days into incubation, and if you do it very gingerly, like with your fingernail or something, and inside of that hard-shelled egg will be a soft egg. And it's kind of like a little rubber bag. Uh, most gecko eggs do not have this. It's a 2nd the second uh, barrier for that egg, so it's an extra. It mm. actually probably helps retain the moisture a little better for the egg from drying out
1: from sitting there for so long. Do you so think like, it's when like I, a, it
4: this? I'm sorry.
1: Do you think it's like an evolutionary difference between a soft shell and a hard shell, or just a specialized adaptation?
4: I think it's a specialized adaptation uh, because it also occurs with a couple of other geckos that we now know about that don't occur in that the same southern parts of Africa. So, but yeah, yeah, here's some office. Uh, Walberga that lives in South Africa, uh, but lives on the east side. But Coelotes lives in Southern Africa on the west side. But why Coelotes did it, I don't know. But I do know that when I I I, I candled the eggs, um, I thought this is this is interesting yet familiar. But so having that experience in the past, I knew that it would be you know obviously fundamental just to leave the eggs alone and just wait to see what happens. I think it's a good good argument for any egg unless it discolors or blows up or or, or whatever. So I left Never them. You were checking an them. Yeah. Yep. And I, I noted uh, I had either dimensions down to the exact millimeter. I put calipers on them. I, I weighed them. I monitored them. I checked them. And I tried everything within my power. Remember, I, I had the, the eggs were laid at my old house. And I went through a move and came to my new house. He'd been here, Joe. And I had them down in the building. Yeah. I, the eggs, I'd almost forgot about them. And then I, I went to, to uh, candle them one day, and I noticed one of them had veined up. And I thought, holy hell, I mean, I've got cold chills. It was 500 and some odd days into incubation. And it, things were just beginning. And so that, uh, I had sacrificed three or four eggs along the way to uh, describe the, the internal details of what was going on inside the egg. So uh, I had about 16 good eggs still incubating. And uh, by the end of two years, uh, they were hatching. And what was interesting is I had all the eggs in the same, incub- uh, same incubator, same box. And in very similar medium, similar temperatures. Therefore, I mean, everything was pretty much consistent across the board. All twenty of these eggs are getting the same, same treatment. But they were developing at, at vastly different times. And you know, sometimes a, one egg from a clutch would would begin at day five, sixty-four, and day uh, that's clutch might, would begin developing at six fifty, or something. Huh. And. Yeah, so th- this also happens with heather drake right? and I think i think i told you about that too. That uh, yeah. friend of mine in Germany told me that uh, one of them had hatched at like it was really fast, like 165 days, and the other one, its clutch mate in the same deli cup hatched at like
1: 262. Wow, like I, I think
4: 100 days apart or something. But so anyway, but yeah, you know, so I'd, I'd had that experience with the home, home office before. And I think that, that had I not had that, I, I would have just been frustrated and thrown the eggs out and thought, you know, these are slugs. But they weren't slugs. They're definitely not yeah. slugs. They're, they're properly calcified. There's just no coloration. It's just like when you candle a, a colopus cocae egg for the first year, it is completely white. It's like candling milk.
1: Wow. There's nothing. There's not an air
4: pocket. There's nothing.
1: Hey, John. Um, I yep. had a, an odd circumstance with uh, Diplodactylus scaliatus And mm-hmm. I mean certainly Diplodactylus and it's no relation to that outside of being a gecko. But yeah. I had two eggs. It was the first clutch I ever gotten from them. And I candled them at two weeks. I candled them at three weeks. I candled them at four weeks. I candled them at six weeks. And they were clear. I didn't see veins. I didn't see pink. I didn't see orange. I wrote them off. They were shoved to the back of the incubator because I am with a rule. You never throw anything out unless it's yeah. completely collapsed, cracked, or dead, and yeah. I looked in there, and one day there was a baby, and then the next day there was another. Have you ever seen that with Diplodactylus before?
4: <clears throat> not, uh, not showing signs and, and vasculariz- vascularization and, and uh, veining and, yeah. and
1: color? Um, I've seen it, because I know vitatis and Tessellatus do it, because I've bred those, and I've seen that on those yeah but do, I mean usually what I'll see is a gas pocket, a pocket mm-hmm. you know where that cavity, that that that
4: gas exchange cavity at the top kind of on the side, a little cavity oh, will yeah. form there, and there'll be a membrane, and it'll be kind of just kind of a hmm, almost like an orange color, or off, really off orange, a really faint orange I'm telling it probably doesn't help, but it looks orange to me, uh, but yeah, just kind of a coloration, but not much going on. I've seen that, but not clear hatch
1: yeah it was they're the yeah. only eggs i've ever seen do that and i thought it was really weird because i bred two species of Diplodactylus before that um i don't know i you know you hatch a couple thousand animals over years you're bound to yeah. see a couple of freak show things it just it it kind of perplexed me to this day because i mean i know about the gas pocket at the top and i i could have swore up and down those things were infertile and I looked huh. in there, and I was like, how did that happen? Did somebody switch my eggs? <laughs> you know, of course not, but it was, uh, was kind of crazy, yeah. Huh.
4: Yeah, I don't, I, I've i not seen exactly what you described, so, yeah, it's interesting. How long did they take the hatch after, after you put them to the ho hum section?
1: Uh, I, I actually remember, because yeah, I wrote the dates down on them. It was 71 days, and it was 72 days, which is a little bit long for them. Um, I'd had other ones hatch around 60 to 63 days. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, it was just a a really oddball thing. I couldn't explain it. it's it kind of stuck in my head to this day, how did that happen, you know? Because yeah. it six weeks, when I did that final candle, I was ready to just toss them. But then I thought, you know, I I saw a helodermid egg, it's a zoo hatch that was completely, it had mold over half of it for like the last three, mm-hmm. four weeks of incubation. And uh, the mm-hmm. zoological manager there at the time, he was like, you know what? Don't throw it out. It hasn't collapsed. You know, it, it looks okay. And sure enough, we came in one day, and that thing was hatched out, you know. I mean, most of the time a moldy egg does say death. but um, I've had moldy yeah, eggs too, man. <clears throat> yeah. They throw them
4: out. Their bones are fully formed, and they can have stuff growing on them. I've even actually used antifungal uh, powders and stuff on, on eggs and saved them. No. Nice. No. Um, I've had it. I've, I've actually had a uh, slightly moldy egg of a nesurus hatched this year myself. Um, mm-hmm. you, you just you don't you don't count an egg out until until you you ex- absolutely absolutely have to count it
0: out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What kind of antifungals do you use, John? I'm sorry. What kind of antifungals uh, do you use in that? Because we I get that occasionally on my leopard gecko eggs.
4: <clears throat> yeah, I had a. It's been. Um, I think I did it at the old house. So it's been at least eleven, twelve years ago, and I had a uh, like an af- uh, a athlete's foot powder. Somebody at the zoo had told me that it works. That it just <laughs> works as well as anything else. So I used it, and it worked well. Uh, it wow, didn't save everything interesting because, interesting. because a lot. I mean, a lot of the causes for the egg to mold uh, can be varying degrees and varying varying causes. But uh, oh, yeah. it, in at least a couple of cases, it, it powdered. I mean, put the fungus in check and then if i'd stopped using the fungus fungal powder the 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 stuff would come back so and then i just kind of monitored it and kept reapplying and stuff like that as it as it incubated and, and they patched so
1: uh, yeah. well yeah I'm i'd had a here, right? uh, a uh, a oh, i uh, it was starting to collapse about 3 weeks ago and uh, i just did uh you know take a paper towel double it over completely cover that part you know in a couple of days it started to uh started to fill in the yeah from the moisture but it just wasn't getting all the way up so then i just added some more moist vermiculite right on top of it and luckily it it filled in you know it, it completely mm-hmm. back up and it's candling good so so far so good i think that uh that one's going to pop out sweet yeah, a lot of times i think it's just uh, yeah How could you say maybe just um varying degrees of of uh
4: successful calcification of a of a soft egg, and that mm-hmm. some are thinner, some are, are are more thicker, and therefore less uh, less prone to to desiccation and collapsing and stuff like that. And others aren't. So, um, yes, I mean you, you can't treat all eggs the same, uh, other than the fact you should leave them all
0: until they to they hatch or go bad. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, John, there's there's one gecko. That uh, mm-hmm. a lot of us talk about often, and it's it's one we'd love to see become more popular here in America, and that is naltinus gray grayi. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah. Uh-huh. From, New, from New Zealand, and uh, uh-huh. they're just they're incredible. And um, what do you? I mean, obviously you've worked with them. What do you think about uh, that particular species, and do you think it'll ever become mainstream here for breeders?
1: Uh-huh. I
0: mean,
4: <clears throat> excuse me I think that they 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 will gain a little more traction in time but the um the I mean the general tendency is that you know the, the, the female a good female that's three three plus years old will will give birth on average once every two years you you may you may break the record you may you, you may have a female that does it three out of four seasons or something like that but you know look I mean if I gave you a pair of nocturnus gray eye and you, juveniles, and they say they were yearlings or something, it would take you two years before you're ready to breed them, and it would take a, a five- to seven-month-long gestation, and it's going to take you two to three years to raise those. So, I mean, some years down the road, you're going to have about three pairs, maybe four pairs, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe after seven, eight, ten years, you may have four or five, six pairs, and then you may hook up Joe with a pair or something like that. So it's not really the thing that you're ever going to see. I, I, I mean, I say ever, but I don't think... I don't predict the time when they're going to be setting on, on, uh, you know, some advertising medium, yeah. um, being available, you know, five lots. If you buy
1: five, you get a break or something. So, yeah. Um, well, God, yeah. Those. yeah. And there's the, that's the, the good thing about them too, too. Not, yeah. not everybody that's going to have them is going to breed them, you know, and not every animal is going to be breedable. And you mm-hmm. take that, uh, you know, that slow, long gestation. It, um, I, Someday we'll see some more numbers of them, but I, I don't think they're ever going to be a mainstream, you know. Um, right. Like, they've uh, like in captivity.
4: They've been in captivity for, for many years. Yeah, I mean, they've been in the yeah. U.S. for at least 20 years, and, and they've been uh, – I, I know uh, imports actually uh, 30 years ago into the U.S., uh, people yeah. with, with modified permits. But, and they've been in Europe the same way,
1: but they're still
4: right. not – super common
1: yeah I've got a a friend not a gecko, but he works with uh carusha zebrata you know it's a live bearing large skink from um you know solomon islands, and I asked him uh you know when are you going to be done with your holdbacks and he's like, probably by the time I die, <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know if I'll ever have any available, um you yeah. know because the guy wants a, a large colony you know he knows other people to breed them, and he wants bloodline trade outs and he just he's dedicated to the species, you know he likes it yeah you know it's
2: that's one thing I can say david
4: one thing I can say david about about Maltinus, people that are that are really fervent uh lovers and, and dedicated for years to to things like Maltinus are the same type of people that are dedicated to like Joe alluded to Carusia. uh I know a guy in 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 Switzerland that has a large group of shinglebacks uh, I know people that have groups of vigurnia De depressa uh portalless now small, yeah. but anyway, uh, the, 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 it's, it's not something that you get instant gratification. And geckos bring, a lot of geckos can bring, you can go from egg to egg, and sometimes as fast as five to seven months. So it's, it's, there's a lot, there's a little more instant gratification for the impulsive type of uh, reptile keeper. Whereas, you know, if you look at Maltinus and you look at, at uh, Cordylus and you look at Gurnia and, and Shinglebacks, uh, it's a it's a totally different thing. And you may get babies every other year and only two. And
1: so that's yeah. just
4: not a sweet enough deal for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, uh, but you gotta but those people gotta like, keep in mind too how exciting it is when you've waited two years for something and you look at well, that yeah. page and notice that oh, baby and you're what on. It was like. <laughs> yeah, I I've yeah. yet to do that one yet, but it's it's on the bucket list for sure. You know, it's got um, yeah, to be an amazing. Just the, way,
0: just the way I'm thinking about it too, John and Joe is mm-hmm. like if, if I had those in my collection, I would be such it would it would be such an honor to be like a steward to them and to be able to just to just to just like you say, just to have them. And I, I understand what you're saying how some breeders can be totally dedicated to one particular species or subspecies, and you know that's like their main focus. And uh, mm. I, I could totally, you know, definitely see myself being able to commit to to that with the with that particular species. But I, it's just I, I'd also be afraid to breed them. I would, you know, I would I'd be worried about the females, uh, you know, having problems. And I don't, you know, it would be I mean, they're really
4: pretty pretty hardy. Gray, especially gray, I think is, is is quite a hardy animal when you compare it to <clears throat> Malteanus elegans and some other ones uh, because the yeah. I mean, gray eye is. Quite forgiving, tolerant of. Uh, <clears throat> I don't re- recommend temperatures under the 80s, but it can take it to take it for sure. Huh. For sure, and uh, yeah. I mean, I would prefer it to be about 77 to 80 on the on the warmer days, and in a screen cage with good lighting. But uh, you know, there, there there are a few tips and tricks for people. to, I, I've got some particular plants that I use uh, that really make Maltinus, uh comfortable. And secure. I mean, in, in nature, they live in manuka bushes. It's a very dense uh, foliage, and they, they get up near the crowns of these bushes, and they pop their heads out, and warm up in the cold New Zealand sun, and they they, they regulate that way. But um, you know, you, you have to you have to find a happy medium in captivity. It's not easy to find a live plant that that would do that, uh, because manuka doesn't mm-hmm. do well in a terrarium. So I mean, you, there, as long as you, really, the, I think the key to Maltinas is is I have a synthetic bush that, that I've stocked up on, and I've shared it with a couple of other guys here in the U.S. that, that needed it, and it's, it, 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 you know, I think it kind of paid dividends for them as well. But uh, I mean, there's little tips with them, and the main thing yep. is don't roast them and give them the proper shelter. Uh, they're really hardy. I think the most fascinating thing with gray eye is the uh, the males, if in, in the females, if if they're they're, they're really uh, kind of bitey uh you know, as far as territorial and, and mating and stuff like that, they can be really irascible. And they are have the um, ear piercing scream. I mean it would make a leopard gecko or, or nephur sound like a part time weekend habit. I mean these things rip loud. <laughs> I mean like a like a like a dying pig. Oh wow. unbelievable. Yeah. They put out some sound.
1: That's cool. Are yeah, they uh, are the uh, females Protective of the babies? I'm sorry? Uh, good question. Are the females protective of the babies, or are they kind of no, not so much? Not so much. Maybe
4: immediately after birth, but usually the babies, yeah. uh, what they'll do is, they'll, they'll as soon as they're born, they head toward tighter cover that the, the, the adults can't get into.
3: Mm-hmm. And
4: they usually hang out in there for weeks. And sometimes you, you might find a baby that's got a little bit of size on it. You're like, whoops, well, I thought it only gave birth to one. When in fact it gave birth to two. And I mean, sometimes searching through a Uh, You know, a three-foot-cubic cage looking for for the babies is is tough in these plants, and the the babies kind of swim around, but they they get away from the adults, and the adults don't really. I I haven't noticed anything where they're more. The the gravid female can be cranky, or pregnant female, Mm
3: -hmm.
4: and a a male that is, uh, you know, fit on on, on breeding a female in the spring can be cranky. But by and large, I don't think that uh, if you put your hand in there to do something, they're not going to come after you. They're
1: not yeah. overly protective. Do um do any of the, uh, another New Zealand genus, and I think some of them are kind of broken up from it now, but like Hoplodactylus in general, are those, some of those kind of protective, or are they more kind of laid back about it too? Well, they're
4: more laid back. In, in fact, uh, Woodworthia, uh, the different species of Woodworthia, to my knowledge and my limited experiences with them, is that the uh, Woodworthia lives kind of like a, hmm, something between a, yeah, I mean, you, you, you've kept uh, both of these. So if you can imagine a, a synthesis between an okay
1: and
4: a bavaya. Bavaya, because it's a dipodaxum, it's got the texture it has got that, but it, it kind
1: of
4: yeah. shimmies down into to ground crevices and stuff like that. It's more of a rock feature uh, okay. subject. Oh, in fact, all hopodaxes that live in association with rocks and, and outcrops. So uh, and, and some of them live almost on, on flat ground and, and live in crevices in the ground. So they they're wow. very communal, very tolerant of each other, very tolerant of juveniles. I don't know of any. I've I've, not, I've never had anything uh, any evidence of, of babies being cannibalized by anything from New Zealand.
1: That's great. That's great because yeah. I can't imagine much more disappointing with the gecko project than it took two years. It's beautiful. Look at yeah. it. It's being <laughs> So uh, <laughs> That's, wow. Yeah. No, I'd, yeah.
4: Uh, I'd punch yourself for that if that happened. But I, I, I've never, I've never seen it. I've never heard of it. But
3: uh, yeah,
4: uh, you know, maybe a nip tail or something. But uh, and they, they, they might be a little bit protective. But I've not, I've not seen it. Sure. Do you
0: have a Do you have
4: an established uh, colony now, John?
0: Of them, I've got I've got a
4: have got a few of them, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. And I've got a
1: few with worthy as well. Yeah, I always thought it was. Um, obviously, they don't have that behavior, but interesting. Um, the species that do are a little more angst. You know, when you want to try and remove an egg, like a chihuahua, I had one. <laughs> Chihuahuas are going crazy this year. I had one. Um, she laid her eggs on a piece of cork, you know, not on the ground, not kind of half buried, just flat out in the open. And I'm looking at her and she looked right at the eggs, you know, mm-hmm. she's not resting next to it. She's not exhausted. She's still ready to go. So I reach in there and I take another piece of cork and I put it between her and the eggs. She goes flying up that cork. And I mean, you know, they're, they're not fast-fast, you know. They're not like Bavaya fast or Rotrophus fast or not. I guess more for the general public, they're not Day Gecko fast. Um, yeah, they're loving, mm-hmm. loving, loving, I've never seen yeah. one do that before. This thing comes flying up the court, hops off of it, lands on my shirt, and starts heading up my face. And this is a little chihuahua. I'm not typically afraid of it, but I'm just grabbing it, you know, like right yeah. behind the head like you're not biting my face. And it probably wouldn't, yeah. but it was uh, – just one of those moments of, wow, that thing just, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, 30, well, probably 45, 50-gram gecko just bum-rushed the 240-pound guy, you know. It, uh, <laughs> it shows that instinct over intelligence sometime of It's like me running at Godzilla, you know. I mean, I guess if you're going to yeah. do it, it's going to be over your kids, but, wow, <laughs> that, uh, it was ready to go. Do um, you notice that in many other species that you work with, um, yeah. I mean, Maybe tracheorrhynchus uh, or anything like that? I'm sorry? Uh, do you like tracheorrhynchus? I'm just trying to think of any live bearing. Because it just, obviously the New Zealand ones don't do it, but it would almost stand a reason that something that invests, you know, that's why I was asking, that much time, that much energy has that yeah. low of a birth rate with. You know, maybe be a little bit more protective of it, but I guess those they blend in so well with plants. Maybe they're really just relying more on camouflage.
4: Yeah, and I think it's just kind of indicative of their evolutionary scene that they don't have a lot of predators that would naturally um, uh,
3: pick them yeah.
4: off. So, yeah. I mean, the snakes are gone. A lot, of, you know, there's not a lot of uh, mammals and you know, birds and stuff like that. I mean, I'm not going to say no tians at the top of the food chain, but there's sure. not a lot of predators either. So, uh, I mean, a lot of them You know the uh the recurve lives on on, on Stephen's, Stephen's Island, or, and it lives in, in sedge grass uh, under mm-hmm. little rocks that are the size of dinner plates. And these big, healthy-looking, woodworthy things, uh, you know, six seven inches long and it's the girth of a you know a half dollar or a silver dollar. Uh, these things live in like that, and they, they have to come out. and There's nothing to to flip the rocks and raccoons and cats, and that's why there's so many things like the two ataris, mm-hmm. Things are other things around the world, but if they're just setting out, they, they they get picked off. But um, you know the the are up in the bushes, and there's nothing really. I don't think there's any. Certainly nothing on the woodworth is. Um, yeah. To prey on
0: them. Interesting. Um, guys, yeah. we got to take a quick break, and um, uh, when we get back, it's uh, going to take uh, just a few select phone calls. Uh, so um, just hang tight, folks. And uh gonna put you guys on mute just for a couple minutes while I play the plug and we'll be right back. Thank okay. you, everybody. Thanks. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. Gecko Nation Radio is sponsored by
1: Ohio Gecko
0: is famous for amazing tangerines, snows, and other very unique leopard gecko projects. Thad also has some incredible fat tail morphs available from stingers to starbursts. Visit him online at OhioGecko.com and at Expos in the Northeast. He is also the owner of GeckoForums.net. Dale's Bearded Dragons is your one-stop source for any reptile supply products that you may need from Exoterra, Zoo Med, Rapashi, Repcal, Fluker, and much, much more, and all at 20 to 50% cheaper than your local pet store or big chain pet store. They are also the biggest reptile supply distributor at most of the Northeast Expos. Contact them directly online at dalesbeardeddragons.com or message me on Facebook and I'll put you in touch with the owner. Supreme Gecko is a great source for crested geckos, day geckos, and other species including micro geckos. Wally Kern is a top-notch breeder and gecko enthusiast. Visit SupremeGecko.com for his available animals and supplies. Gecko Boa Reptiles is your source for the highest quality leopard gecko morphs and wild types, from white and yellows to radars, amazing tremper morphs, and rare subspecies. John is a world-class breeder and extremely knowledgeable. If you're looking for something truly special in geckos, contact John Scarborough at GeckoBoa.com and on Facebook. Rainbow Mealworms is the largest worm grower in the world and selling to the public since 1956. If you need the highest quality mealworms, superworms, and crickets for your pets, contact them at www.rainbowmealworms.net. All right, folks, uh, we are back. And before we get back into the second part of our interview with John Boone, I uh, want to mention uh, that if you are a gecko enthusiast, And you are serious about it. There is a place for you other than Facebook. Check this out. Did you know that since 2006, there's been a treasure trove of history and information on leopard geckos and other species? Well, Gecko Forums is the most extensive database of leopard gecko history on the web right now. Take a look and delve into the past, present, and future of this great community. The biggest contributors, breeders, and hobbyists have left their mark there. Now it's your turn. Look, learn, and post away. Need a place to post animals for sale? Look no further. Visit geckoforums.net and become a member today. Gecko Nation Radio is proud to be the official radio show associated with Gecko Forums. Herpentime Radio is my inspiration for GNR. Justin and JD do a terrific show every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern and have an amazing archive of shows available for download. Visit them at blogtalkradio.com slash herpentime and on Facebook. All right, folks, we're going to be back here now with Joe Hupp and our guest, John Boone. And there you go. All right. Uh, thanks, guys, for, for waiting. And uh, before we take a couple call, phone calls, uh, Wally from Supreme Gecko, asks if uh I could ask uh John and Joe uh, a little bit about uh their nephrist, their knobtails. And um he wants to know uh how you guys set them up and uh do you keep the smooth and the rough uh types.
1: I'd say yes for both of us. Oh. Right.
4: Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I, agree. I, I, I I do the same thing.
1: Yeah yeah we uh we actually just did a trade last year where um I got a bunch of uh really cool species from john and uh he uh, in exchange got some uh some for me, which are i think for the most part if I'm not wrong species you i'm pretty sure you'd bred before yeah. um yeah but yeah yeah i i love them Nephers are one of my personal all time favorites you know uh new Caledonian mm-hmm. and Australian geckos are really what I started with um for the most part. And then uh, I just kind of spread it out from there. Hence the name of my business, Australedonian. Um, but I don't know. Uh John, you wanna go first and then I'll uh, I'll rip through how I keep them real quick after that.
4: Sure. Yeah, I uh I kept the first this at ninety four and I've kept them pretty much consistent ever since and um the substrates of what I refers to I, I use kind of a, a loamy sandy soil. Um and uh Joe's came down here and used this exact same stuff uh, off my property here but uh, you know really the uh, the nesting chambers that's really where the substrate's really important for the for the ami and and the, the wheeler eye the rough knobtails and then the smooth knobtails uh, depending on what species uh, really kind of dictates how much moisture and how deep your substrate should be things like Levivissimus might need a little bit deeper and a little bit a little bit more moist and then some of the larger ones can tolerate a little bit, you know, drier and a little bit more variation in that in that substrate uh, moisture and humidity. So um, really, I mean, I, we can prescribe something or, or there might be some prescribe uh, You really need to kind of get a feel for what your animals are, what your taste and, and your, your touch and everything is with the, uh, your full overall approach. I mean, hydration of crickets and hydration of food items are, are going to be the, the key thing because, first mm-hmm. of all, first and foremost, the animals will become, uh, keep hi- hydrated from the inside out, and then prevent uh, dehydrating by, by other external sec- secondary factors. So, um, I mean, really, I think the husbandry for first is pretty straightforward. Um, I, I don't know if that was originally part of the question or not. I think it was, was it just the substrate, David?
0: Um, he, he didn't really go into detail. I guess he, yeah. he wanted to see if he had any, like, I, secret tricks or anything that, you know,
1: Maybe, maybe some overall care or something like that, kind of summarized. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think
4: I, I think really, uh, first and foremost, is them. I mean, you, I, I get mine down yeah. into the fifties. I always have. That might oh seem wow. my um, Yeah. yeah um, I had my Levis Levis Joe and uh, down into the low fifties this last winter, low to mid fifties huh. for about almost ten weeks.
1: Yeah. yeah, I um, I usually take mine down into uh, the mid to low sixties. But they don't really have the weight that I want them to have when I bring them back out, and I bet that would help out with that a lot. I actually give them a lot more time than most people do before I pair them because when Mm -hmm. I get them out of cool after the low 60s, I mean, I'm feeding them small meals daily for, like, the next two weeks. They never get thin, but they just aren't that big, fat, robust, ready-to-go, you know, look that I want them to be before I'm even going to let a male in with a female. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: So... And um, he also asks uh, if uh, you guys, what would you suggest for a good transition gecko from, uh, from leopard geckos and crested? So, for instance, if somebody's trying to get away from the common stuff and wants to transition to something a little bit more rare, what would you guys yeah. suggest uh, as a good species to start with? I
3: mean, I no, really suggest a lot of
0: things because,
4: yeah, I, I keep a lot of things and they're all relatively easy. It depends yeah. on on your terrarium. It depends on your temperature. It depends on your food sources that you're going to to utilize, and yeah. and what strikes your fancy. So I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff in the hobby today, and and yeah. a lot yeah. of a lot of different choices. So you know, really, if you kind of narrow it down, is it desert? Is it a temperate? Is it a, something it needs a cooling? Is it something tropical? Does it need this temperature, this type of terrarium? And then you know, once you establish that, then then you could kind
1: of have a pretty good grid of things to pick. Yeah. Up. Yeah, I think um, I'm going to touch back on the, the Neferis and Source for just a second. Um, I think for anybody that's newer to them out there, really choose the more rough-skinned ones like Wheeler Eye, um, you know, possibly Amy Eye if you want to invest in that. They're pretty tough. Uh, Millie, actually, um, which aren't technically Neferis. They have, um, you know, more of a, uh, in my opinion, more of a Phylorus-type tail but fatter, because it doesn't end with a knob, it ends at a point, and they have digital lamellae um, weak, but it's there on their uh, fingers. But I think Millie is the easiest for me, and they're the only one that I keep in trios. I keep my Neferus separate, and I rotate my mail through. And um, the one trick that I like that I throw out there is uh, I use a heat pad for my um, for my Neferus and my Underwoodasaurus. And basically what I do is I take a rock or another clay pot, and I stack them. Um, so that the bottom of that clay pot is pretty close to the heat pad. It's pretty hot. And every once in a while I do notice gravid females will go under there. Um, But all that heat radiates up, and clay holds heat so well um, that most of the time when they thermoregulate, they'll be on it. And when the lights go out, my heat pads go out two hours after the lights are killed, so they've still got that chance to, to kind of thermoregulate. And for the next hour and a half after that, it gradually cools down. But um, I like the clay pot method because – and it's a clay pot bottom. Sorry, I should, uh, you know, specify that because it gives them multiple thermal zones. You know, they can choose the temperatures that they want, whether if they've eaten, whether if they've gravid, you know, and there's always a cool side as well. But um, I use – uh, for,
4: for my, my heating, I used heating 24 hours a day. And, and anywhere that I've ever been in nature, uh, yeah. I, I've, I've, I've dug – down into the African sand like a honey badger uh trying to find geckos two to three feet down in the sand and i I, I have a camp gun and stuff like that i, I note uh things from from these geckos uh from their from their from their natural ranges and things that I could take home and use for my animals and share mm-hmm. with others and, and as well and that, and that is that, you know if you use a, uh orangii, the web foot gecko is an example if if you find that gecko in nature and and you're on the surface. Where that animal appears for about 30 minutes to maybe two hours a night to mater feed, and it goes back down into the sand. When you go down 12 inches, the temperature is is consistently, depending on what time of the year, usually in October, November, the temperature is 80, 82 to 84 degrees at 12 inches, and that's hmm. a 24 hours a day, minus the, the, the hour or two that's on the surface. If it's yep. you have something like a tinnitus coche, and it's living... Thirty-two inches under the under the surface of the desert, that's a full two and a half feet down in the sand, and you take temperature readings at that depth. The temperature can be as high as eighty-eight, and it's that way. Uh, you might have a, a one-degree temperature change over three or four months. I mean, it just it's not going to penetrate wow. that far down, and that's where that
1: coki laying her eggs. So there, there is a barrier. yeah. So yeah. Deer, and how. Is this all night? Does it stays that warm, or does it kind of cool down? Yes, sir. No,
4: you can you can dig down, you can dig down with a shovel,
1: mm-hmm.
4: morning, afternoon, evening, or night, and dig down thirty two inches, and it is always eighty eight degrees, always. Wow. And it okay. will change one degree, maybe in ninety days, maybe. I mean, think think uh, okay. out of okay. Thirty two inches of sand. I mean, that's, if, you're, if your house had 32-inch thick rock walls, uh, I, I, you, your house is just not going to lose heat or cold. It's just not going to do it. So when you have an ephyrus, a smooth knobtail that lives down in the, the, the moist substrate, uh, because that's the way evolution dictated it, it should live, and it lives at 12 to 18 inches down in the sand, it's not going to experience and experience a, somebody turning the heat off. It's going to actually. It's going to come up to suboptimum temperatures, eat, and when it gets too cold, it says, "Screw it, it's over with." I have got to go back down uh, because I'm not, in my thermal optimums. I no longer have the metabolic uh, influences to eat. I'm going back to bed, and they go back down uh-huh. to where it's 84, 88 for the next 24 hours. Yeah. Well, I guess so, probably I mean, I the reason I'm still
1: producing I'm sorry? them pretty. I guess the reason I'm still producing them pretty well then is my rooms. Uh, my daytime gets up to about 82. And that's for about 14 hours, and then my nighttime only drops to about 78. So it's yeah. not really cooling down that I think that it's thought. a bad thing, Joe,
4: because I did the same thing. And it's something that I adjusted after I, I made observations in nature of huh. geckos on multiple continents, that they're yeah, going to that. just the way things work.
3: Yeah. And
4: I don't write it. I just I, I observed it, and so I huh. implemented it. because it, and, and I, I get um, yeah, probably better production than I did back in the 90s out of, huh? uh, you know, a nefaris or anything else. Because, uh, again, keeping that heat pad on for me or the heat tape through a, a rack system or a heating pad is, is not that big of a deal, uh, you know, because you and I are, are conditioned and conditioned to think that we should allow it to kick off.
3: Mm-hmm. But in
4: nature, it doesn't.
3: Yeah.
4: And a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of things that went after do in that live 8 to 14 inches deep in, in solid rock, boulders half the size of your house. Those things don't dissipate very quick either. Oh, I'd
1: they imagine. Yeah, long, that's yeah. a lot of insulation. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. cool. So, that's fascinating. Anyway, I mean,
0: the, it's little things like that that make all the difference though in, in Captain yeah, Husband I
4: think with it with it makes species. species. Yeah. It mm-hmm. makes a huge difference for me with, with breeding genipus because I know I, I, I've, I've been that honey badger and I've dug down and, and had thorns all over me and, and just my fingertips bloody from dig- digging down in the sand and the, and the grit and trying to dig these things out and, and, and noting I've, I've made <clears throat> charts of how the, the tunnels and, 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 and fake uh, tunnels and, and line tunnels and egg deposition chamber and resting chamber, I've made little diagrams of where I was going to make an article about this because I've actually, uh, me and two or three other guys have sat there for, for an hour and a half, two hours to dig, a, a, a dig down in a burrow or something like that and note the... Uh, uh, you know, the way that the, the burrow system structured for one single animal. And, you know, that egg is down there at, you know, 24 inches deep. And, you know, you find egg fragments, maybe a fresh egg down there, and you know it works. That's what works. That's what nature says works. And so mm-hmm. I I keep my benefits, uh during their active season. I keep the heat on 24-7 through the whole season.
1: I think it makes a difference. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Now, what's your, um, I mean, I kind of had a feel for it when I was over there, but
2: I didn't actually, you know, take
1: a temp gun or anything and look at the thermometer. What's your ambient daytime and your nighttime drop in the rooms?
4: Yeah, well, this time of the year, it doesn't drop. I'm in Oklahoma. You know that. So, and it's a metal oh, building. Oh, yeah. Uh,
1: it's hot, and, hot, uh, and hot.
4: I don't have to worry about it not being warm enough. I have a, uh, I have central heat and air in the building. And it's uh, overhead ducted and double insulated building, but the uh, air conditioner kicks on when the, the ambient temperature of the room is 83 degrees, and then I have a backup window unit because I had a, a you know my, my I had a two year old brand new uh, essentially air condi- central air system throws up during the drought that we had a mm-hmm. couple of years ago, and so I've, I've got uh, a backup generator, and actually I've got two separate. Uh, I've got a freestanding air conditioner and a window unit as well, but. Um, 83 degrees, 83 degrees, the air conditioner kicks okay. on, and then depending on where the cage is located vertically from floor to ceiling in the room uh, will help uh, in, in lights and so forth will kind of determine what additional temperatures those cages might be. But the basic room temperature is 83 at okay. that chest level.
1: Gotcha. Now, is there a night drop or does it just stay at that 83?
4: It drops. Right now, uh, you know, if I go into the building, the first thing when the lights come on in the morning, uh, the mm. temperature is about 79
1: to 81. Okay. That's so how it's well the building stable. is. Inflated. Not much. Yeah. I'm sorry? Okay.
4: Oh, I just said so it's fairly stable. Yeah. Yeah, it is extremely stable. I built it, I built it to be a, a man cave, a, a gecko cave, and, and uh, <laughs> sure. to not lose whatever I put in it, whether it's the gecko getting mm. out or the temperature or anything else, yeah. We had an ice storm here uh, five years ago, and my place here was without electricity for eight days. The city of Tulsa was shut down for, like, five. (gasps) And you know what? Oh, my God, Benny Herber's Nightmare. Yeah. And the ice, I had an inch of ice and everything, and and the building was without power. And I went down with a temperature gun before I turned on the generator. Four days after the power went out, I went down with a temperature gun, and it was 65 degrees still in the building, temperature never came above freezing because it was completely
0: iced. Yeah. So wow, that's yeah. how well-insulated it is. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's take a couple phone calls, guys. I've um, sure. got a couple people that I screened earlier that uh, have good questions for us. Uh, the first one is daryl 432 code. You are live on GeckoNation Radio. Hey, Dave, John, Joe. How's it going? Great. Yeah, enjoying Joe. it tonight. This is a a great show. Uh, lots of vital information here, guys. Really enjoying it. Uh, the question I have for you, John, is is I'm kind of looking for the gelatus, the diplodactylus gelatus. You know, I talked to Joe about it on his show, and he turned me on to Jason, and, and uh, I don't think he's going to have any. Do you know anybody that might have those available this year?
4: I didn't catch the species, sir. It was diplodactylus. Gelatus.
0: Galeatus? How do you pronounce that? Okay. Galeatus.
4: Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. Galeatus, yeah. Gelatus. Yeah. And your question about Galeatus is, 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 if I'm going to have any this year. Exactly. I've got I've got a pair. That's all that I've got. I've got a few eggs, and I hope to have them. Uh, fascinating animals. Uh, a female can produce up to eight clutches. Uh can be... It can be a very fecund species. Uh, whether or not I have ex- extra surplus at the end of the season, I'm not quite sure at this moment, but hopefully everything goes well and I might.
1: Yeah, it's easily one of the most marketable ones. People love Galeotis. Yeah.
0: Yeah. They're nice. Well, You're cool. Maybe I'll uh, shoot you an email or something and you can keep my name in the hat if you have some. Maybe I would uh, definitely be interested in them. Yes, sir. Thanks for calling, Daryl. All right. Thanks, Daryl. Enjoyed it, guys. Thank you. All right. Oh, and uh, by the way, when Daryl says he wants something, he's 100% sure he does. uh, He's definitely not a – Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's go ahead and uh, see, grab this other one. Ah, this guy you guys know. This is Tim Walton. Tim from 845. You are live on Gecko Nation Radio.
1: Hey, how's it going, guys? Great show tonight. Um, thanks for coming on, John and Joe. Uh, it's really interesting listening to all you guys have to talk about with all these different species you work with. John, uh, what I'd like to hear you talk about is uh, some exciting uh, adventures chasing geckos around in their native habitat. Where do I begin? <laughs> I don't know where to
4: begin on that one. That's I, I remember uh, a lot of drive-hour trips out of
1: from here to Chicago and back with lots of them. Yeah, there's a lot of good ones.
4: So it, you you want uh, uh, gecko show field trips or you want nature field trips? I think you mean nature field trips. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah, I, I yeah. kind of want to hear something where you were in danger too, where you got yourself out of some some deep doo uh, I mean, yeah, I've had uh, uh, I, I, I think, hmm, I
4: could tell a couple of quick stories. I say quick, all uh, interesting stories. I'll try to make them as quick as possible. But I think uh, oh, well, we have time. We have time.
0: We have another half hour, John. So take your time.
4: Okay. I think one of the uh, ones that I, I, I sat. I'm sitting on my back porch and I'm thinking, what is what what is the what is one that is really a riveting very profound experience and, and it's one that i had back in the 90s and i, I traveled to north africa and uh it was a long trip I'd, I'd flown from tulsa to dallas dallas to frankfurt frankfurt to prague czech republic and then i took uh buses and trains and boats all the way into the sahara so i would traveled through france through spain across the mediterranean past the island of gibraltar i came into port to tangier morocco uh and i had two military duffel bags on my back and a backpack. Uh, I had my wife with me, and I was. Uh, she was uh, three months pregnant. Uh, we walked. We hitchhiked into the Sahara. Um, we went to Casablanca, Marrakesh. Uh, saw snake farmers, camels. Uh, I mean, you know, people, wrapped in clothes like like in biblical times. I, I went out into the edge of the Sahara um, and uh, camped. Um, at an area east of Gombe, out out into the the uh, foothills of the Anti Atlas Mountains, and so I stayed there for five weeks. And in doing that, uh, uh, my primary mission was to to better understand Feltia or Feltia some people refer to it, Feltia morum. It's a thorny, eyelid gecko that lives a day active gecko that lives only in the rocks of the the, the foothills that drain out into the Sahara. So I I went firsthand to uh, because I got some animals from a guy in the public Republic in 1991, and then in 1993 uh, I was in Morocco trying to figure out what I was doing wrong. So um, stayed for five weeks, found Caden I went back, made some adjustments, and then went back the following year in 1994 and flew directly into Casablanca uh, on a quest to get animals out of Morocco. Uh, I had visited with the CITES official in the capital city of Rabat, and he told me that essentially, that if I worked out a, a um, uh, just an exchange program with a with a zoo in Morocco and a zoo or private reptile breeding facility in the states, that he would personally approve the permit. So I came back in '94, uh, had all the everything lined out. I had land picked out uh, near uh, in the south part of Morocco in the desert, and I ended up. Um, going, and we, my wife and I ended up buying land, uh, about 13 acres to build a small zoo, because there was no zoo within about three or 400 miles of this. There was a zoo in Rabat, and um, I told, talked to the, the scientist guy, and he said, you know, if you'll teach some of the techniques that you use for reptiles, hu- reptile husbandry in North America, and, and I just didn't have time to hang out at the zoo for six months. So I built, I was. I went on the quest to build a zoo, and in doing that, uh, it was very difficult to I was a foreigner. You just can't walk in and say, "Well, I want to build a zoo here." So I had to get government approval. And uh, first of all, I had to do it on a city level, and it was, a, it was like a mayor. It was called a kayad. And so I went to the uh, the province, the uh, province of Gulming and visited with the Kayad and then um, eventually visited with what they call the chief of Kayad, which is a larger one, somewhere somewhere between a mayor and a governor, and got his approval. And had the land picked out. And then after that, it was two days of, I think it was from the second day of meeting, we said that we will go by government vehicles uh, to the governor's palace and that they'd made arrangements for me to visit with the governor. And uh, I didn't have a car, I was was on foot. And I had military bags and was carrying some camera equipment and stuff. And so my wife and I were stuffed into these old, dusty cars. And there was a a convoy of three or four cars, I can't remember, but. It took us into town because I was wearing flip flops, uh, khaki shorts and a tank top and said, so We're gonna take you into town and, and get you clothes and, and make yourself look you know presentable to the governor and it's just like something out of an old movie. And so we took a convoy of cars out into the Sahara Desert, out of way. It was kinda like one of these uh things you'd see like on *Master geographic like the, the the palaces of Saddam, and we drove for miles and all of a sudden we came upon this compound like a huge network of buildings and big wrought iron, like 12 to 16 foot wrought iron fence all the way around it with armed guards. Um, I didn't understand what they were saying. We pulled up and they're talking about da-da-da-da-da, da da and they, they, they wave their guns for us to go through. We drive around to the back of the compound. My wife and I, a native named uh, uh, Hassan was with us, and then Akaya, the chief of Kayad and a couple of other government officials. We walked, we sent into a hallway and waited, and the governor eventually said, somebody walked out and some a messenger said, should, uh, come, the governor will speak with you. So my wife fortunately speaks fluid French. I speak absolutely no Arabic. And we walk into the room, and there's seven, six or seven chairs, and we all sit down, and I'm the second chair from the right, and we're facing this big desk that's probably 10 feet wide and three feet. It's just a big mahogany-looking wooden desk, and a big room, lavishly, all, all, all this and that. So we walk in and and I kind of present what we're talking about. He understood my English a little bit, but eventually my wife began to answer some of the questions uh, in French. And I could not tell my wife in English, and she could not find the words in French to talk to the governor. But anyway, so it was a little bit frustrating. We were in there about two hours, and um, he was asking questions like, you know, do you have architectural plans for your Facilities and buildings, and how many people will you employ? Do you, you know anything about the Tourism Bureau and what they will do to help you uh, get this thing set up and, and signs and da 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 da? And then, you know, how much money will you pump in, uh, employees, and so forth? And at, at one point during the conversation, I remember sitting in this, this chair facing the governor. I was about four feet from his desk. It was a big room. And I lifted my right I had both feet on the floor. I lifted my right leg and put my right foot on my left knee. We, we all do that sometimes when we're relaxing in a chair for two hours. And i usually pretty aware of my surroundings. And I noticed that all of a sudden the governor was getting very pissed off at me. And I'm thinking, what did I say? And I still had my foot up. And uh, he uh, got very tense. And I noticed the kayaks to my left you know, with their turbans around their heads and stuff, they're getting tense. And I'm talking to through my wife and my wife's kinda of looking at the kinds and everybody's like you could tell people were starting to get very uncomfortable. And I thought, you know, we were about to get kicked out. And uh anyway, uh hold on just a second.
0: He he's building up sense of but... Okay, I'm
3: good. I'm yeah. Good uh,
4: there you go. <laughs> so, so anyway, the uh, what I what I did not realize was that uh, my lifting my foot and exposing the soles of my feet to, to, you know, royalty in this type of Muslim nation, that I was truly about to be kicked out. And anyway, uh, I eventually put my foot back on the ground, and, and uh, uh, the governor was really frustrated. It's asking some questions and stuff about more questions, and, and uh, eventually called for a translator. And the uh, translator came in, and I eventually – thought we were about to be thrown out, and the uh, uh player said, is there anything else you would like to ask the governor? And I, I knew it was my last my last closing sentence. And I said, you know, look, I, I, I would like you to ask the governor what he has to lose. I've traveled halfway around the world, and, and I had all kinds of things going on between uh, uh, even just my collective experiences of moving around in, in, in a country like that with as Americanism, as you carry military bags and walking around with a woman that wasn't wrapped in clothes. Uh, anyway, so I said, "What do you have to lose? What do you have to lose? I've traveled all this all this way to build a small zoo to employ people. What have you got to lose?" And I remember the cajuns looked at me. Then everybody just looked straight at the governor. And the governor looked at me, looked at him, threw his hands up in the air, leaned back in a kind of a swiveling like chair his hands up and, and murmured something in arabic and uh the translator said uh oh, the governor thinks it's a very good idea and so anyway uh a guy came in with a, a little cart uh of, of mint tea they kind of this a traditional thing that they do uh greeting is to, to serve mint tea hot mint tea and we had mint tea and, and the governor said what would you like for me i said i need papers uh authorizing me to uh uh, to buy this land and begin doing it. So he, they, they had the papers drafted. They stamped it handed it to me, and I walked out. I walked out and got back into the cars. The chief of Kayad said, John and Stacy, I must tell you, did you notice there was a lot of tension in the room? I said, Yeah, no. I mean, What happened? What did I say? He, says, he laughed. He said, you know, uh, I have to tell you that when you're in the presence of government people, you were to never show the soles of your feet. And I thought, oh, man, yeah, I think I remember doing that. I was like, oh, yeah, I know, it's kind of rejogging everything in my mind. And that's literally, he says, we were very close to being thrown out. And he says, I know that the governor realized that you're just a, you know, quote, stupid American and you just don't know. But, uh, yeah, so it was really, really a sketchy feeling. But we walked, we drove back to the, to the uh, kind of like a town hall, um, and the, there was a lot of people that had prepared, like, a dinner for us. And what had happened is that night, King Hassan was giving a like a presidential address over national television. And so we walked in this room with all these government people, and there were probably, I want to say, 30 or 40 people, uh, all setting uh, yoga style along the outside perimeter. There was nothing in that room except for a TV, and it was something about the way these people honor and respect, uh, you know, presidents and governors and stuff like that. And, and the client told me, he says, John and Stacy you will sit with the chief at the back of the room in these three chairs and everybody else is going to sit on the floor. And during the presidential address, it's going to be nearly an hour on television, he says, please do not allow your eyes to avert from the TV. And it was at that moment that I realized the fanaticism, the fanatic, um, this amazing amount of respect these people have and that I had, I had almost blown it. And it was a really, really big deal uh, to sit back at the back of the room and watch these people. And, and of course, I didn't understand a word that the king was saying. But just that whole experience was um, going from kind of a zero to almost like a hero. They were celebrating and, and just uh, uh, clapping and jumping up and down and, and sloshing mint tea and, and giving us, you know, hugging us and stuff. And It was just it was incredible. It was almost like something from some kind of a movie. And uh, I think about it now, and I think about sitting on, on some of the hilltops and watching the sunset after that out the Sahara and, and, and going and seeing things like Gatoni or T- tarantola Chajlay, really profound experiences. And, and hearing the Muslim call to prayer echoing across the, the Saharan valleys as the sun setting and just saying, wow, I have no idea what they're saying, what this is all about, but this is freaking cool, you know. So I think that was a really good one. And then... Uh, you know, I've had a lot of uh, uh, close calls and things with with uh, mammals in South Africa, Botswana, and Namibia, down in the other the other end of Africa. So, um, what
0: happened with the rhinos.
4: Yeah, my uh, my very first trip to uh, uh, Namibia, I yeah, um, I had everything happen on that trip. Mm. I had I was I was rushed by a black rhino, which are now categorically supposed to be extinct. I got it on film. I was uh, tracked and followed by a leopard at night. The following mm-hmm. night, I was roared out by a lion, and I had elephants come to 13, uh, it was not that, yeah, it was 13 elephants came to our tent uh, on the same trip. So I had all these close calls, and I came home after my first trip in, in Africa, and I said, you know, man, this this really cemented my interest, because just to go look at this stuff, I just about had my hat handed to me, or handed to my family.
3: <laughs> yeah,
4: but uh, the, the rhino deal was—I uh, was near Atasha and I had a uh, my my interest in Southern Africa is to, to to create a video field guide to the geckos of Southern Africa, and it's to encompass all these countries. Um, I uh, I carry a video, I carry still camera stuff, and I want to get a a different perspective than just going to a bookstore or getting a PDF and showing or explaining to somebody how um, Tinnipus lives. I want to show you, the viewer, by video, this is what the habitat looks like. This is what the burrow timbers look like. This is what lives with it, and this is why it lives with it. So to explain it on video for each species on a DVD to where you can categorically go through and pick out uh, what species you want to look at, I think that's a really cool new tool. It's kind of a concept that I have but in Africa and the Caribbean. But anyway, so in doing that, I had, well, you know, I'll just get some uh, some mammal footage. You know, it's kind of like an introductory part to the to the reptiles of Southern Africa, the geophers of Southern Africa. And so I've got clips of uh, lots of different birds and mammals and things and mongooses and whatnot that I had saw a rhino. I thought, well, I'll get some good footage of this rhino. And uh, I, I noticed it was in a salt pan, it's very flat, kind of, you know, just a little bit of grass, and one acacia tree in the sand, And this is really picturesque. And so I got out, I set up my tripod, set up my camera, and uh, I looked at. and I used my camera to zoom in to figure out what it was in this mud hole. And it was probably 100 yards away, 150 yards away, and I could just see the top of something and it was, it was a black rhino, it was in a, it was in a wallow, and it was in, there's some water, and it was just, you know, keeping cool in the sun, it came out. I thought, oh, cool, you know, now I get a nice good view of it coming out of the water, and, you know, I'm rolling it, it on video. And uh, I, you know, just don't think anything about this thing. is going to charge the only thing that's in, the, in its path, but uh, uh, it comes out kind of, acts like it's going to walk broadside away to the right, and stops, gets a little closer, stops, squares, and then snorts, blows, kicks, dust up, and charges. So, fortunately, the gut was was in a Jeep, and he's, like, starting the Jeep, and that was enough. That sound, fortunately, he started the Jeep, and the Jeep was behind me. I was in between the Jeep and the, the rhino. It was enough to uh, distract or scare the uh, rhino to run in a, in a, you know, slightly, kind of towards me, but off at an angle. But I was dragging the tripod in the camera. It was bouncing and going. And so, um, yeah. So two days later, I was uh, near Twifelfontaine in the, near the Ugar River. And uh, me and a, uh, another guy were, were camping. And, and I was uh, documenting Pachydanctus scutatus. Because what's weird about this guy is it lives in a very small area. And I could not find what the boundaries would be. If it's food, if it's uh Uh, you know, discontinuous rock outcrops. There's there's dunes or flat spaces in between the hills because this gecko kind of lives in associated rock. But there's absolutely nothing to keep this gecko as restricted as what I thought it was at the time. And so uh, I was walking around. I was was finding him uh, near acacia trees under bark. I was finding him in piles of rock. I was finding him in vertical rock crevices. Nothing was... It was just wherever they could get. And so... Uh, we popped a tent on the bank of a dry river and hiked about a mile and a half because I saw uh, a rock feature along the dry river that looked like it would be a good place for Scutea. So I thought, well, you know, shoot, I might as well just get some footage here. And so I'm down with uh, my friend, and we get all my stuff set up and, and got the lights and camera. And uh, I, I'm, I'm getting footage of Packy Dac with Scutea coming out on this, this rock cut. And uh, I noticed my friend is about... Ten feet to my right, and he's using a mag light, and he's eye shining kind of behind me, away from completely opposite of the rock wall. And I see him kind of you know, looking around. He's what he's doing is, I mean, now I do it quite a lot. Is, is when you're doing something, you need to periodically look around with your flashlight and try to eye sign, uh, you know, things like black-backed jackals and and hyenas and, and cats and things like that. And you know, you might see, and there's no telling what you see. So. Do I shine something? But it was coming. He said, "I think it's hyenas. It's coming towards us." I said, "Oh, you know, I'm not too worried about hyenas unless I fall asleep or something." But anyway, he said, "Oh yeah, it's coming closer, but it keeps setting in the grass when he would hit it with the light." So I turned my lights off for the camera and stuff, and I looked, and I said, "Well, turn your mag light off and let me look." And I used my mag light, and I saw yellow eyes. And I'm, I'm colorblind, but I could still tell these eyes were yellow. They weren't, you know, hyena colored. I said, oh well, uh, yeah, yellow eyes. I said, wait, wait a second. This is my first trip in Africa. That's that's a cat. And so anyway, turned out we. I said, man, this is packed our stuff up and we need to get out of here because I think it, it, it might be a lion. So we take off walking. I, I put all my uh, my, my tripods and, and backpack and camera stuff on my back. And, and my friend was like, you know, what do we do? I said, dude, just turn on every light bulb that you have in your backpack, your headlamp. Lights, hold lights out and, and hold them out away from your body. Turn your headlamp on and just start talking and walking. Make it look like it's a group of people. So he's he's saying something during I have absolutely might. I don't know if he's you know singing lullabies. This is my last night. You know, da da da. I was scared. I thought, holy <laughs> hell, this is a bad deal. So I'm walking and I've got these lights all around me. And every once in a while, my mag light is in my right hand, and I'd swing it up to my right eye and put it there, and I would. I would pan to my left, and uh, anyway, I I would see the eyes, and they were walking parallel to to us, and slightly getting closer. And after about the third or fourth time, I picked up the spots of a leopard. And uh, so there we were, we were walking alone. I had a couple of knives on me, and I was roughly a little bit more than a mile at that time away from my camp. And you know, running in sand and and thinking about that, you know, it's just a, a really bad feeling, but. That was that night, and then the next night, two guys from the uh, two guys from the uh, zoo in Germany caught up to us. Uh, they would spent some time at Tasha, got some good footage of some mammals and stuff, and uh, I, you know, I really kind of felt that I did not finish and get justice on on what I was set out to do on the Pachydyctus potatoes, So I went back the next night, knowing all four of us were there, and so the two guys kind of walk along the. River. We kind of break up, and like, you know, we're not going to see the leopard because you know, cats kind of move in a, uh, you know, a migration route to follow prey and stuff. And uh, things work a little bit different in the desert. I, I do know that, but anyway, I didn't think anything about the leopard coming back the, the next night. We get back out and set the stuff up on the exact same rock wall, and uh, I'm not—I don't even hardly have my, my equipment set up, and I hear uh, just a. Anybody that's ever been to a zoo and heard a male lion rip and cut loose, it is, it's nasty loud. And I was yeah. so close to this lion that I could feel the shock wave of the sound hey, out man. of my chest.
1: Yeah. I'm going to interject oh in a few seconds. I live 1.2 miles from the zoo I used to work at. On yeah. occasion, from my back porch in early fall, I can hear the lions from the zoo. <laughs> yeah. It, it's kind of surreal when you step out of the back porch, you're like, Whoa anyway, I'm sorry, go ahead. So anyway,
4: I felt, I didn't, I, I, yeah, yeah, of course I heard it. I felt it, and I'm like, oh, my God. And the, the dude that was with me, uh, the German guy, his eyes literally looked like pool balls about to fall out. He's like, a lion. And I'm like, lion, <laughs> yeah, time to go. I was just here last night, leopard, and now it's a lion. So I'm walking back. And we hear the lion, I think, two more times. It was walking at an angle. It was in between us and where I needed to go back to the tent. But I knew that the oh two God. guys that were, other guys that were with us, I had not heard or seen the lights or anything. And I'm thinking, they're behind us, so they're somewhere maybe close to this This lion sounded like it was, like, 100 to 200 feet away. I mean, I, I literally felt the sound. It was like a shockwave coming out of the end of the gun if you're in front of the muzzle. So... Anyway, uh, I'm walking, and turning turn the lights on, and, and my, my friend is singing German lullabies again, and we're walking, and and uh, I, I'm yelling, you know, I'm yelling for these guys, yeah, Felix! I'm yelling, you know, the other guy, Dieter, I'm like, Felix, Dieter, nothing. And I'm walking and walking, I think, oh, man, this is really bad. I'm going to have to call home and, and, and say that somebody got, you know, it was a lion cracker. And I walked probably a half Half to three quarters of a mile, and I see this little bitty light, right at ground level, kind of go, whoo,
3: whoo,
4: just kind of lighting up and going out. I'm like, "What the hell is that?" There's no lights out here. I mean, I was I was 300 miles, eh, yeah, about 300 miles away from a paved road. I'm out in the middle of nowhere, and I see this light, whoo, whoo, just kind of dot up down. I'm yelling, "Fire! Fire!" And I heard the line again, and. I finally walk in, and this light is so bright that I could. I, I actually, I finally saw somebody. Somebody was sitting on a fallen acacia tree log, laying there in the dry river. And it was Felix. I'm like, Felix, dude, what, what are you doing? I said, I'm yelling at you. And He was smoking a pipe, and that was the light that I saw. And he was smoking hmm. a pipe, and he says, Yeah, John, uh, yes, I, I, I'm okay. I said, Where's you know Dieter? I said, Dude, you have to say something back. He says, Dude, there's a light out there. He said, I could hear you, and I heard the lion. And I said to myself, this is between John and the lion, but when I hear John, everything's okay. He keeps saying, Phoenix, Phoenix, Phoenix. And so, anyway, yeah. I—that We get back to the fence, man. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm done. Get I'm done with Scoopaitin'. Huh? You didn't want to get involved. I'm done. I'm absolutely done filming Packy Dats with Scoopaitin'. I, I have worn myself out two nights in a row. <laughs> Back to yeah, back 4 got of of <laughs> I got out of it. I got back to the tent, and I'm cooking like some canned crap over or, or over a campfire. I've got to eat. I've, I've got to settle. I've got to do something. I just you know, and we hear this like right, all this commotion. Like we're right on the bank of a of a we're on a, a bank that's maybe 10 feet high. We're right on the lip, and right at the base of that lip, elephants were walking through. And I'm like, what the hell? Now there's elephants. i I coming back to camp to eat, and there's elephants walking through here. But I'd later, I was to learn after experiences that elephants use dry rivers as walkways, sidewalks. It's their, especially in the Namib Desert, you see these National Geographic specials about desert elephants and all this and that. They move at night. It's too hot. And so when you're looking for geckos that are active at night, you bump into these boogers. And so anyway... Oh uh, my first trip, I came home. I, I I I had I had I was I wasn't tired of it. But I had completely it had transformed my mind into you know thinking about people that road rage or get upset about this or that. I mean, look, I was just I'm looking at geckos and, and I I, you know, I got stu- I almost got stuffed a few times. I mean, it's it is really really hectic uh, in some of the areas of, of Africa. Most of it's you know kind of fenced and. I like things would be in North America, but there are places, places, especially in the central part of the Kalahari and northern Namibia, uh, you're in red zone. You, you, you walk out, you step out there, and you are, I mean, desert animals don't get as much to eat. I don't think that a leopard, you know, in Tanzania or in Kenya or even in Kruger National Park in South Africa would, would really stalk people. 'Cause there's plenty what of What were it you feeling stalking. like
0: when it was stalking you? What were you What were you feeling like during that time?
4: No, yeah, you, you say you say to yourself, I I messed up. I messed up, yeah. and now I've got to think yeah. about if something comes at me, I'm going to go at it. I'm just going to go all out blitzkrieg, and I'm going to punch and stab. I, I, I'm going to take my knives yeah. and, and I'm going to do the best I can do. But against a lion. I mean, I, I've talked to you about this, <laughs> I mean, it's just nothing – I don't care how well you think you can defend yourself. You're We're pretty much a jelly donut to a
1: lion. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, person, remember you, uh, huh? I remember you – uh filled I remember you mentioning, too, as well, um, you know, most of those places, you can't carry a gun. So no, you don't have a gun. Without,
4: you have absolutely you're out gun in the middle of line. the
1: desert. There's no way you can outrun any of those animals that are stalking you. You're not going to get away. And, I mean, mm-hmm. it's like you just said. You know, earlier today when we were talking, a 400-pound animal running into you, it doesn't matter how strong you are. It's going to take you over. It's uh, terrifying. It's like, uh, you know what I was joking about when I used to work at the Herb House at the zoo? um, You know, a couple of friends of mine from the carnivore division I'd have lunch with once in a while, they'd joke with me, you know, what are you going to do, you know, if something dangerous like a venomous snake gets out? I'm going to pick up some tongs. I'm going to pick it up. I'm going to put it back in a cage. What are you going to do yeah. if a bear gets out? You're going to die. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's a different world. Yeah, it's a
4: different spectrum. But, you know, in Africa, um, you're dealing with uh, microbes. You're dealing with malaria. You're dealing with um,
2: uh, rogue powerful, animals. Man.
4: You're dealing with carbras. You're dealing with mambas. You're dealing with, uh, I mean, astolopsis. We'll show those carbras and things like that. I mean, You're dealing with uh, poachers. poachers I'm sorry.
0: Uh, poachers,
4: is there any danger from like uh I think, poachers uh, and uh, yeah. stuff like that? not the poaching is, is not uh yeah, it's you know poachers that people want to make a living don't do a very good living in Namibia because the, the animals are fewer or far between, they have to range further in order to find their, their resources because of the Namib desert being what it is, but it, it, mm-hmm. it occurs everywhere, you know. I've seen. I was in the on the Trans Kalahari Highway between King and, and the Namibia border, going through uh, kind of western uh, Botswana, and uh, the the Trans Kalahari the Highway at night is um, it is a magnet for animals. And it, it really sounds stupid, but it really makes a lot of sense
0: because when you drive
4: uh, in the Kalahari, if you look at a map, the, the trans Kalahari Highway goes kind of northwest of southeast at a flat diagonal toward uh, Gaborone and Labotse down on the South African border. So as you cross it, that's the only road. I mean, it was built maybe 20 years ago, and prior to that time, you just had to off-road and drive dirt. So it's the only paved road. And so all the animals know that, um, yeah, the animals that, that end up on the menu of cats, like Springbok, Gimsbok, kudu, uh, some of these are big hoofed animals they go stand on the highway because the predators won't go there so as you're crossing this area at night uh, you go over a little flat rolling hill and bam all of a sudden there's a two in the middle of the road I mean, it's like, it's like freaking hit a cow it just, it'll just annihilate you so you have to be very oh, careful so I'm driving across it one night and I see a, a semi kind of jackknifed and, and stuff on the road and I'm thinking oh man somebody's jacked up and a dude had smashed into a kudu, and he had the big brush guards on the front that went almost up to the top of to where the hood would be, but it smashed things up pretty good. And the dude, I, I'm like, I'm stopped and slowing down. I'm like, hey, is everybody okay? And I see this guy, and he's a little bitty, he might, he, he's like the size of a bushman or a hottentot, he's these little African people that are you know, five, five and a half feet tall. This dude was like curled up in the, car- in the, in the carcass of the thing gutting of the kudu. And I said something, he said, oh, yeah, you're, 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 I, I take the kudu. And uh, I said, yeah, I mean, I guess you have to. But, uh, you know, people, people there, when they see me, it, it's a survival thing, and people do poach. And yeah. unfortunate as it is, I, I had a guy actually on the edge of the Kalahari tell me one night, he says, do you want to, I said, no, I don't want to shoot a spring buck. He says, I said, well, if I wanted to shoot a spring buck, how much would you charge me? He says, well, I'll take you tomorrow. Well, they were out of season. He was going to take me on his land. He said, I'll charge you only $60. I said, well, what would I do with it? He said, I'll cut it up you can take it for space. So, I mean, there was somebody soliciting taking me and allowing me to shoot a springbok on his land. So, it, I mean, I think it happens. And uh, so, I mean, you know, a lot of people see this stuff on Facebook about these hunters that, that go over, uh, this Michelle Bachman and this other lady that was recently exposed on Facebook for shooting uh, elephants and things like that. I mean, as sick as that seems to a lot of people, it is fundamentally the only way that the, a lot of wildlife departments in Africa can fund wildlife officers and prevent poaching. That yet sell these these people that are willing to pay twenty-five or fifty thousand dollars for a for an elephant tag or a lion tag, and it staffs two wildlife officers for a year to prevent true poaching. So mm-hmm. I mean, it, it really
3: you know,
4: everybody's got their own lines for, for morals and justification of that, but that is that is the economics to prevent poaching in Africa. And it, and it, you know, on private land, it doesn't work because people are going to do what they want to do, and if somebody hits one on the highway, they're going to do what they want to do. But I think mm-hmm. in the big scheme of things, it really works.
0: So, wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what, John? We're coming to the end of the show, and mm-hmm. it's been just a, an amazing uh, time with you, and I mean, I could just tell that the the wealth of knowledge and information and experiences, we could go on for hours and hours. But I just want to say it's been an honor to have you with us and just to share a little bit of um, your life with us. And uh, you definitely are living the gecko dream. And uh, that, that's <laughs> My for friend, sure. Man. It's just yeah, very easy to and, talk about
4: things uh, that we're passionate about, and that's uh, it's cool. And I, I think that, you know, in, in closing, I'd like to say that to a lot of people that, you know, when you hear stories like this, I mean, it might be a little far-fetched for you or, or the next person or whatever, and, and I've had a lot of these stories, a lot of experiences. But um, really, I found a long time ago that there's, there's really three things that keep me plugged into uh, my hobby. There's a lot of times we go through the doldrums, mm, Yeah, mm, kind of boring right now. You know, you think about doing something else, you need a break. But there's really three things that I do to help keep myself firmly plugged into to, to my hobby and my interest, and that is, um, you know, spending time with people, spending time with people that have the same energy and interest and passions and sharing that and mentoring people and helping people and sharing stories and letting them share with you. I think that's, number, that's one of them. Another one is, is uh, going to the field and seeing the animals that, that, that we're passionate about and and and, and, sh- and and just having that, this is something that those images and those experiences are something you can never be taken away. And, that, again, that's what prompted me to do the DVD you know, video field guide stuff. And then thirdly is adding, you know, new experiences with species in captivity, I meaning, you know, Joe's at a, nearly 120 species or something. I mean, it really keeps you plugged in. And, you know, for people that, that aspire to, to, to take their hobby to another level and to really – uh, realize the full impact of it. I, I've I realized it from from a lot of cultural experiences. I've, I've camped with Bushmen. I've lived um, in, in with with uh, the uh, Himba people. I've, I've camped with in these areas where I mean, just in tribes of people. It's really primitive, and you come home and you, you, you come home and you have a, a really unique perspective of what a rare gecko is, and and what a rare chance it is to see some of these things and to see it in nature. Um, I really think that a lot of I, I, a lot of times I, I kind of question this, but I really firmly believe that overall, if I was to have to give up either field trips or animals out of my terrariums, I would probably give up the terrarium animals first because it really drives it drives it, drives, it, 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 it can hit anybody. It, it really it's such a fulfilling thing. It really
1: is. So yeah, anyway, I I, I can't uh, even imagine. You know, I mean, I go herping where I live, and I'm used to these animals because I've seen them my whole life. But, you know, you go to South Africa, you know, and see, you know, Pachydaculus rangei. or you go to North Africa and you see Helmic you know, or Certidaccholus in Southeast Asia. It's it's just got to blow your mind when you see that out in the field yeah. in its habitat. You know, that's that is awesome.
4: Yeah. It really, I think it really keeps... It helps keep me plugged into it because I mean from all the i I do a lot of uh things to help scientists scientists come here and study animals because it's almost kind of like a living museum they've got plenty of live data I've got you know a preserved collection as well, and I can assist people in a lot of different facets in a lot of different ways and uh you know the the more ways that you can plug into your hobby um the better off the the more fulfilling your your experience is going to be,
0: yeah. Um, John, uh, Tim has one more question for you before you
1: go. Go ahead, Tim. Sure. John, uh, I think a lot of other listeners would be interested. I was wondering if you had any experience observing any eubloferis in the wild. Um, True eubloferis,
4: no. I've not been to to Pakistan and and, uh, the area around the Caspian Sea or or India. I have not been there. But I've seen uh, Coleonics from here into Central America. So And no illegal boats or anything from Southeast Asia, unfortunately. Not yet. yet. I really hope okay. that the situation in the... <laughs> I, I've looked at going to Pakistan and Afghanistan, but, uh, you know, it's just a uh, dangerous kind of way. Kind of <laughs> so. Yeah, you've keep your head, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and no, I have met the comics. I've not been to... Uh, uh, I've been in West Africa, but I've not hunted... Hemithecons, uh, and I've certainly not been to uh, Somalia
1: to hunt uh, Taylor guy or, or what or Afcons or corny. But um. yeah, I don't think Somalia is a place on my list. There's a lot of them, but that's not one. I mean, for gecko, if you look at the actual oh, for geckos, yes. For living, no. <laughs> no, for yeah. living, heck, no. Yeah, yeah. is yeah, bad right now.
4: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ethiopia is really good though.
1: Yeah, oh gecko-wise, it's awesome, but I want mm-hmm. to come back after I see them. So yeah. <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. The Horn of Africa is a hot spot for for gecko radiation and evolution and, and unique things, and and it's uh, and so is Southern Africa. Uh, you know, just for number of species. I mean, my, my my work would ultimately include once I get everything done on the DVD thing, it would be upwards of 150 taxa. That's a lot of a lot of different geckos to get videos of because. People keep finding new ones. Yeah. So, yeah. Great. Well, well, thank never you end. so much
0: for answering the questions, John. Yeah, my pleasure, Tim. Good hearing from you.
4: All uh, right. Thanks, Tim. Talk to
0: you soon. Have a good night, guys. All right. All right, John. Once again, I just want to thank you so much for giving us your time. It's been a great honor to have you with us.
4: Yes, sir. My pleasure.
0: All right. Maybe Glad we'll have you, to, have to have you back again sometime in the future. Just let me know. I'd
1: be happy to do it. Yes, awesome. it's all right. always good to hear because it it's a plethora of knowledge, and you can't talk to John and not learn something. It's practically impossible.
0: I was in awe for the last two hours just listening. It's just like my dream <laughs> to do what you've done. Incredible. All right. Well, yeah, we can go, all do John. it. Thank you so much.
4: Okay, buddy. Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: All right. Uh, what do you think, Joe? How do we
1: do tonight? It, it's awesome. I, uh, you know, it, usually when I uh, talk to John, um, it's kind of the uh, the jab and step back effect. Ask a question and learn. You know, yeah. I think when you've got yeah. an opportunity to absorb a lot of good stuff from somebody like that, the best thing to do is not really talk that much. You know, ask the things you're interested in, the things you think about when you're working your rooms, when you're reading yeah. books, when you're looking on the internet, when you're out herping. You know. Because, yeah, uh, I, you know, we can play with things that are in tanks all day, but until you go out there, until you see it, you know, and it, it gives you such a full understanding, you know, of exactly what the animal's biology is, you know, and it's, I it's could helpful in the terrarium. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's great. Every, uh, you know, Timley Park show uh, for the last few years, we've vended next to each other in October, and uh, my house is a halfway point, so he crashes here. And, uh, you know, we go out, have something to eat, hang out, get to hear a few stories and catch up on, you know, life. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a five-hour drive, you know, with nothing but just sheer, it would take me months to learn, you know, what he helps me with. And that trip up there and the trip back, you know, it's just wealth of knowledge you get from real life experience. You know, it, books are important. I'm not discounting them.
0: I'm like numb right now, you know. Just, just I'm, I'm probably gonna listen to this show like four or five times during the week. I mean, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. I yeah. mean, I'm,
0: as we were talking, I was and like you said, I was being quiet because yeah, I didn't want to interrupt him. And um, oh yeah, I did take yeah, a, yeah. I I took a few glances at his his uh, his website and his mm-hmm. um, his gallery page, and I mean, you look at all the different species and subspecies. I mean, all I, I was just thinking, if we had infinite time, I could just mention go down the list and just listen to him talk about each one and all, you know, yeah, yeah. everything he knows about each one is like, I'm sure it's just, he can, he could write a book on each, each one of it. Um, yeah.
1: It's, you know, and, it's an incredible collection. It's, it's geez. pretty amazing. You know, and it's, it's one of the things that drives me, keeps me going because I like challenges, you know, hmm. I, I'm okay with something that's easy here and there. But really what gets me going is I have to figure something out or it's not going to work, you know. And, I mean, there's yeah. around 1,500 species of geckos. The only lizard that outdoes it in numbers is there's just slightly more skinks. And that was only by 12 species last I saw. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, geckos could have surpassed them or skinks could have raced a little bit ahead. That's kind of neck and neck. But yeah. um, it just it's one of those things that, you know, people are like, wow, dude, you know, you've got 119 species. I'm like, no, I'm missing 1,380.
3: <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I, I'm,
1: I've scratched the surface, you know, and I started with yeah. some of the easier ones because it's a smart thing to do, and I moved to some of the intermediates and some of the hards. And, you know, there's no one way to do something. There's some species that are really hard that narrows that comment down. But I think, you know, you have to look at things in the wild and you have to look at things in captivity. Mm-hmm. And, you start with what's in the wild. And sometimes that's where it ends. Sometimes that's what you have to do. But, you know, if you give animals options, sometimes it's advantages too because a lot of times they know what they want. You know, there's always more than one way to kill uh, kill the same, uh, you know, bird with one stone or two birds or 12, you know, because I, I always try and keep an open mind when I listen to other herpers. You know, whether if it's somebody with amazing experience like John or Somebody that's just kept things for a couple of years because you can learn from absolutely everybody, you know. Oh yeah. And don't be oh, yeah. afraid. Don't be afraid to experiment. You know. I mean, failing doesn't make you a failure. Quitting makes you a failure. You know. I've had oh, projects that were hard absolutely. that you know went for me the first year and it wasn't a problem. And I've had projects that were hard that took me a couple of years. You know, helmet geckos—they're not really an easy species for most people. But um, the first year, you know, I produced one. You know, the next year I produced three. Um, this well, year I've gotten five clutches.
0: Even if it's slow. You know, it's still progress.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's like if I find an infertile egg for the first time, I don't go, you know, dang, that's infertile. I go, I got an egg. You know, I'm, I'm closer. Yeah. And then the next one yep. is a fertile egg and a dud. I'd rather have, you know, fertils off the bat, but some things just don't work like that you know, and yeah. that's something yeah. I'm really appreciative of, of having a resource, you know, and a friend like John, because, you know, it, you can talk to somebody that's been there. It's like Donnie or you know, cave geckos. A lot of people just think humid, 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 you know, and I talked to John luckily before I ever even got them and, um, you know, they're found in some of the driest habitats in the most humid areas. So you're going to have some ambient humidity, but they need dry spots. So like on all my Ghanis, I pretty much give them like half dry soil and half moist soil. And I notice they do go back and forth and they spend certain times when they're about to shed on one side or the other. You know, they, uh, they know what they need. You know, I mean, my starting point with most species that I've never worked with, if I can't find much information, is a little bit of a larger enclosure and giving them variables and paying attention to those variables. You know, what is working for that animal? Because most, not all, but most of the time, that animal is going to tell you if you're observant. And, I mean, with geckos, because most of them are nocturnal, I encourage anybody that's got a gecko room or even one project that they want to do successfully that they haven't done before, you know, go get a red headlamp um, from home depot. Watch your animals at night because that's when they're active. You know, that's when they're doing, you're going to be less disturbed than you got a, you know, a bright flashlight. They're going to freak out and their eyes are going to dilate. Um, Yep. Yep. But just sit back and enjoy it. It's one of the things that keeps me going is, you know, sometimes I'm down here until 2, 3, 4, 5 in the morning cranking it to get through all four rooms. But I (laughs) always make sure at the end of the night to take 10 minutes with that red hand, you know, the red headlamp, and I walk through and I enjoy it. You know, I forget about having to do nest boxes, you know, in a couple hundred water bowls. I just look at each species, you know, I'm really into or that I need to observe or find something out about and just relax and enjoy it. Because when you observe them, in my opinion, if you don't have that field experience, which is irreplaceable, um, you know, that's where I learn. That's where I excel. You know, that's, uh, yep. that's uh, kind of how I do it. So.
0: No, I'd i have to agree and even though I'm I only have a few of the uh, more rare stuff here, I can totally appreciate that. Um I try to do that. Me and John need to work on that. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I'm more, oh, I'm yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: we're
0: yeah. we're gonna we're gonna move up. I mean I I do have things here that I haven't even really announced. you know what it is, Joe? When I yeah start showing pictures of something new that I have, it seems like everybody starts getting that thing. So I kinda mm-hmm seem like I'm setting some trends, and I I want to be able to, um, you know, make some announcements and be able to have them be all mine without having everybody mm-hmm. else try to beat me to it or get along on the same bandwagon. So I've been holding back some of the things that I'm, you know, building up to here. But, oh, um, sure,
3: sure.
0: You know, I think that's just wise, too. It's a wise uh, way to do things from a business perspective, too, not to give away all your secrets, Yeah, you know? Sure, sure. But
2: yeah. but, yeah,
0: hey, Joe, listen, I want to thank you very much for your help tonight, and um, having you with me for this interview was uh, not only made me feel more comfortable because, you know, it kind of helped me bridge the gap, you know, with my experience and John's experience, and uh, I think um, you, your operation, and we're going to have you back on the air soon, too, for a full episode, mm-hmm. but uh, and you're, you're a guy to watch, too, Joe. You're really, you're coming up there, and you're making some oh, really no, big I- moves, and, yeah, very impressive uh, work you're doing, and uh, you know you have a lot to contribute to to this as well. So
1: uh, sure. keep
0: going and keep doing it. And uh, I will. Yeah,
1: I will. Yeah.
0: yeah well, uh, back, and I think we'll have you scheduled soon. If we did, we schedule a date for you yet?
1: I think so. I'd have to check the calendar upstairs. I kind of keep track of everything on that. Uh, I have a lot mm-hmm. of different appointments and various things that I take care of throughout the week, but. Yeah, um, just, you know, message me on Facebook and we'll uh, we'll okay. get that taken care of for sure. But uh, anybody that's going to Thinley, you know, go by, you know, John and I's table because um, I don't produce nearly as much as John. I'm mostly sold out of a lot of stuff by then. I'll still have a table worth of stuff, but John will have two or three, and I promise you, you're going to see some interesting species you've never seen before. You know, every time yeah. he goes, I love it when he comes to my house first because I get first crack at those boxes um, for anything that somebody didn't already put on hold, you know, uh, before Tinley, you know, which is uh, great. You know, it, it helps me spend my money before I get to Tinley. But then again, I'm going to sell some and make more anyway. So,
0: yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm cool. thinking about taking a ride out to one of these Tinley shows, so maybe I'll see you guys. You should. Oh,
1: so, You should, Yeah, definitely.
0: I'm in Pennsylvania. Yeah. It's, I think it's like, uh, I don't know, I think it's like 10 hours or so, something like that, maybe a little more.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, I'm going to go uh, hang out with on and, uh, you know, a mutual guy that we know at his house in a few months, and he had a good point on something like that. When you add in the wear and tear on your car and the cost of gas nowadays, sometimes a flight's cheaper. Really? Yeah. You know, I mean, you'll know people there. We can come get you from the airport, you know, and drop you off. That's not a big deal. But sometimes yeah, I'm you get flying. in advance. Oh, okay. I got, well, maybe driving your way then yeah
0: yeah I think I'll rent a car though. I won't take my car,
1: you know there you go. I'll beat up a rental car for the for the trip <laughs> cool. but
0: uh Absolutely. all right, well, you know what we're gonna wrap it up and uh Joe, thanks again for being here with me tonight and uh looking forward to our interview together soon.
1: Awesome, awesome. yeah, just shoot me a message, man. Have a great night. Thank you
0: you too, Joe. take care and folks, um if you guys want to uh check out our guests. Uh, John Boone, his website is com, and uh, you can read all about, uh, not, you can read about his accomplishments on the front page, but he also has so many different publications that you can look up and research, he's been in People Magazine, um, done a lot of different articles on different species of geckos that you may find interesting. A lot of obscure stuff, um, stuff you don't see every day, of course, and that's that's the whole point. Um, so, and also, while you're on his uh, website, look at his gallery page because if you go through the gallery pictures, you may see a species that you find appealing that's a little different or less common than what you're working with now. And uh, if it's something interesting that you like or you think you can get into, um, and you're seriously interested, uh, I would pursue, you know, researching it. Okay, uh, I wouldn't start, you know, asking a million questions unless you're, you're definitely serious about it and you have the, uh, the uh, funds to acquire such an animal. Um, you know, I wouldn't uh, suggest just. I'm sure John's very busy and wouldn't be able to just, uh, you know, be a pen pal for a million people, but. You know, if you're seriously interested in something, there there's information here for you. Um, let's see. What else did I want to tell you guys? Next week, uh, we have a great show. We have Christina Olbrecht from Christina's uh, uh, Pet Rescue, Reptile Rescue. And uh, if you know anything about Christina, uh, she rescues all the alligators uh, and caimans that get sold at the reptile shows so that when they get big, uh, you know, People don't want them anymore, so all the people that buy those small little alligators, they usually wind up with Christina uh, once they're bigger. But uh, Christina has an amazing uh, rescue operation that she does out of her house. In fact, her house is basically a little zoo. She's got animals in every single room. She's got big, uh, I've seen it for myself, she's got uh, gator ponds in her basement. Her front porch is converted into a gator pond where her alligator Apollo lives. But um, check out Christina Ulbricht on uh, Facebook, okay? But you're going to hear her next week on Gecko Nation Radio. All right, folks, um, I'm going to go ahead and play the outro, and I'm going to come back with my closing remarks. Hang tight. Gecko Nation Radio is a David Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. The jazz music you heard tonight was generously donated and created by Jeremy Turgeon of J&D Reptiles. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for the great musical pieces. You can check out Jeremy at J&D Reptiles on YouTube and on Facebook. And a very special thank you to our news anchor, graphic designer, and audio tech, Steve Barker. All the graphics, audio sponsor plugs, and music overlays or assembled by Steve. Check out Steve on YouTube at BC Barker Creations. He has some terrific videos for the herb community with amazing geckos and snakes. Please support the U.S. Herpetocultural Alliance and U.S. ARC. Gecko Nation Radio is proud to support both of these organizations. Please donate to U.S. ARC so that they have the funds needed to legally protect pet owners' rights nationwide. You can donate to the U.S. ARC Legal Defense Fund at www. Dot if you would also like to learn about advocacy and how you can take action on a state and local level, please subscribe to the U.S. Herpetocultural Alliance newsletter and blog at www.usherp.org. All right, folks, and another terrific episode comes to a close, and my uh, closing remarks are this: um, when you do something out there and it's something that you're passionate about do it to the best that you possibly can our guest tonight is certainly doing that he's taken his enthusiasm and his passion for geckos and herpetoculture to the absolute max okay that's dedication folks you can all do that all right you just got to ha- you just got to put everything that's in you into it okay um, i try to do that with my love for geckos you know, leper geckos are very common morph, I mean, a very common species to work with, Eudopharis macularis macularis. Um, but we have all these different morphs. And the whole thing with, uh, with that fascinates me about leper geckos is watching these morphs and colors and patterns evolve and seeing how what my vision and my um, ideas of what I'd like to make with them, I, it, seeing that evolve and seeing the results of my hard work year after year is what keeps me stuck on for geckos. These more exotic uh, species are amazing too. And I definitely uh, have a few and we'll probably be getting more in the future. Uh, it's an ongoing process with, when you love these animals as much as I do and we do. But, um, my suggestion to you guys is if you're going to do it, do it big, do it good, be your best at it. Um, I'm gonna play. I'm gonna mention our sponsors now, and then I'm gonna play a cool song to take us out with. Uh, first on the list is Dale's Bearded Dragon. Dale's Bearded Dragons has been with us since the very beginning, uh, since my first radio show, which was great, but turned out to not be a success. But as like we were talking earlier, I stuck through it, created this show that is a success. So you gotta kind of roll with your failures in life and keep going and make sure you. Don't give up on things. Dale's Bearded Dragons was there from the beginning with us, and they are the be- biggest and best reptile supply distributor at the Northeast Reptile Expos. All right, so guys, if you guys need Exoterra, Zoomed, uh, food, Rapashi, um, supplements, lights, you know, for your dragons, whatever you guys need, uh, contact Dale's Bearded Dragons, and you're going to get 20 to 50% off what a pet store would charge for those same supplies. So take advantage. And mention Gecko Nation Radio. Uh, Mario's the owner, and he will definitely take care of you. abdragons.com, your source for dubia roaches. Make sure you check out abdragons.com and use the code GECKO, all in caps, at checkout. You're going to get 5% off. They have the best dubia, highest quality, that are fed premium food, Um, just very healthy roaches, and just the best for your for your geckos and your reptiles. All right. Check out geckoboa.com. John Scarborough. He's the king of wild types. Eubopharis uh, species. Uh, he's got anger manus, all different kind of tremper morphs, uh, bell white and yellows, really nice stuff. Check out geckoboa.com. Cream gecko, Wally Kern, another great breeder, into rarer stuff, micro geckos, day geckos, and cresties. And he's got the food and supplies for those, too. Check out SupremeGecko.com. He was in our chat room tonight. I want to thank Wally for being a part of the show. Of course, Ohio Gecko, uh, amazing tangerine stuff. And uh, Thad is also the owner of GeckoForums.net. And uh, Thad does some great work with different lines, special lines of tangerines that he's working on. I think he's got this G63 project. If I, I think that's what it's called. It's really impressive. And uh, I shared a picture of that on the Gecko Nation Radio Facebook page this week. So check out uh, OhioGecko.com. I mentioned Gecko Nation Radio, too. It's got some really nice fat deals also. All right. RainbowMealworms.net. Um, what can I say? Rainbow Mealworms, biggest worm farm in the world and the best quality mealworms for your pets at the best prices. So make sure you check out RainbowMealworms.net uh, for all your Feeders for your millworms and superworms. All right. Reptiles Express. If you're shipping animals anywhere in the U.S. and you need the best shipping company with the best customer service and the best rates, Reptiles Express is where you're going to need to go. And if you have any questions about shipping, if you're new to shipping and you don't really know how to do it, don't get nervous. Debbie Price is the uh, customer service representative. At Reptiles Express, she's a doll, and she will help you every step of the way. And uh, two years ago, when I first started shipping animals, I was kind of nervous about it, and uh, she talked me through it, helped me. So definitely uh, check out Reptiles Express. Ron Tremper, he is the godfather of leopard geckos. Nobody's been more instrumental in morph-making here in the U.S. than Ron. And uh, definitely over the last 30 years, uh, we would not be where we are today without his contribution. Check out leopardgecko.com uh, for some amazing morphs such as Tangelo's Bandits. Uh, he's got a whole bunch of new stuff coming through, giants, super giants, and, uh, Bell, and uh, Bell and Rainwater morphs now, too, now that he teams up with uh, his wife, Helene. So uh, you can check out his app. Okay, it's called Leopard Gecko Pro. It's an amazing encyclopedia of leopard gecko morphs. And he's got another app called Leopard Gecko Care. And he's also got a shipping app and a few others, so you've got to go check out all the apps too on his site. Um, his book has just become reprinted. So if you guys were fretting a little bit about not having access to uh, Leopard Geckos, the next Generations, you now have more access to it. So he's getting that reprinted for everyone, and you can have it autographed if you buy it through his site. So definitely take advantage of that. All right, leopardgecko.com, folks. Uh, Keith Kiggins of giantleopardgecko.com. Just like the name suggests, he's working on some beautiful, big, supersized leopard geckos and uh, has some nice fat tail stuff and uh, crusties, too. So we're really happy to have Keith Kiggins and giantleopardgecko.com with us uh, as a sponsor for Nation Radio. Check him out on Facebook and online. Uh, Let's see, MS2 Premium Chow, the best food for your feeders. Uh, We love MS2. uh, Marcy makes it with organic uh, vegetable proteins, all kinds of good stuff. There's no dog food or anything. Uh, You know, low-grade in there. It's all high-quality food. So if you want to give your feeder insects the best food, that's the way to go. You are what you eat, folks, and so are your reptiles. And last but not least, our newest sponsor. I'm very pleased and happy to have my friend Daryl on board with us. And uh, Daryl's a new up-and-coming leopard gecko and subspecies breeder. And he's going to be working on some, some other obscure species, too. So definitely keep an eye on longhorn geckos, folks. And uh, you can check him out on Facebook right now. He's also in the Gecko Nation group. But uh, check out longhorn geckos on Facebook. And his website will be up soon. Uh, Daryl and cave that's his son. It's a, it's a father and son collaboration. It has A-plus geckos, the best of the best only, okay? Uh, such things like super supertangelos, pastel raptors, white and yellow bells, pure-lying wild types. Um, so keep an eye on Daryl Burton from Longhorn Geckos and his son, Kate. All right, folks, uh, we're going to wrap it up, and we're going to see you next week. And here's a cool song to take us out. Thank everybody that was in the chat room tonight, everybody that called in, and everybody that continually supports the show. Uh, We certainly love you. Have a good night, folks.